0: Welcome to crime curious i'm charnel and i have a very special guest for you megan is on she's actually at a judges conference so i brought in brain bath jason hello hi brain bath jason so this is a very special episode we actually got in touch with a um vi- the victims of this case family member so this episode we will be interviewing aisha hashmi and she is the sister to the victim wendy camp Also, her niece Cynthia Brito, and then a friend of the family Lisa Kruger. Those are our three victims of this case, and what we did is just let her tell her story from her point of view, where kind of how it played out from her life. Uh, This is a long case, it was a span of 21 and a half years, and so we just kind of sit back and let her uh, take the wheel on this one. So, you know, buckle up, Buttercups, because it is a wild ride just introduce yourself and um, introduce your sister what it was like growing up with her what she was like how your niece was born all of that beautiful stuff
1: (laughs) perfect so my name is Aisha Hashmi Wendy is my older sister she was born March 1st 1969 my birthday is October 15th 1970 and we were always referred to as the two Irish twins that look absolutely nothing alike.
0: Oh, my gosh. And
1: it was true. (laughs) Um, First and foremost, my mother and our birth father, Jeffy Paul Halbrook, recently passed away March 17th of 2021, or 2022, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, but we we not raised by him. Okay, We really had him on the peripheral of our life. It was probably two or three times from the age of five or six up until I myself turned 18 when I started reaching back out to my father. But there were a few times in between there where he would just magically show up and we would visit with him for a few hours. But there were a lot of things that happened between him and my mother that led to a divorce. And my stepfather legally adopted us upon his marriage to my mother. And I was six years old when he married my mother. And he was, and uh, my, I called him daddy until the day he died in 2009. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was a very stabilizing force for our family. And he was a father in every sense of the word. So he's the one who raised my sister and I, and his name was Ed Taylor or Edwin Taylor. Okay. And the reason I'm saying that is only because it kind of starts where my memory starts. Before that, I can't really say I remember much. So upon the marriage of my stepfather and my mother is when my life stopped being so chaotic that memories could start to form, that Um. I had a reason, I guess, emotionally tied to that and therefore I had that emotional connection that brought on memories so my earliest memories of Wendy is when my little brother was born and he was born August the 7th and I'm wanting to say night yet 1976 because I had I turned six a few months after he was born in October okay so I was around five and you know three-fourths However, you want to break that down, mm-hmm. if it's important. So my sister and I literally would sit around and take over the mommy duties. <laughs> that was our baby doll. Sure. And we changed, yeah, we changed his diapers. We fought to feed him. We were very protective of him. And it got to the point where he was about eight or nine months old, learning to walk and things. And he fell down and he ran to me and my sister instead of my mom. <laughs> and we were laughing, mommy, he chose us, not you. Right. And he was like, great. I'm not upset about it at all. I got more time to spend with daddy. Bye. You know, right. so, uh, you know, that was something where it brought on conversations when we got started getting a little older, maybe nine or 10. Now you have to go back in time. And realize in 1977, 1978, my brother was approximately, what, three years old. Mm -hmm. We lived out in the middle of Wellston, Oklahoma, and we were left in charge of our brother. My parents would go off to work, and we are six and eight years old, taking care of our, at that time, I'm sorry, I was probably seven or eight, and my sister was nine or ten. And we were taking care of a two-and-a-half, three-year-old child mm-hmm. all day long by mm-hmm. ourselves. How he didn't get killed or how <laughs> we didn't kill each other, don't even ask. But I remember very specifically once I made my sister really upset because I had gotten into her room and was playing with her makeup. You know, back mm. then it was bonbell and yeah. Sweet Honesty perfume, and I was spraying it on myself, and it had been her Christmas gift. And I was using her Neutrogena face cream and, you know, just messing with her stuff. And she walked in. Now, I know how I've seen other siblings react. They beat them up. They hit them, pulled their hair, get out of my room. I'm telling mom, my sister walked in, kind of folded her arms over her chest. And again, eight years old and looks at me and goes, okay, so Kimmy, you won't stop playing with my makeup. And I've asked you many times not to do it. You know what I'm going to do now? And I said, no, what are you going to do? She goes, I'm leaving home and I'm never coming back and I'm never going to talk to you again. You'll never see me again. She turned around and proceeded to get a little backpack and put her little crayons and etc. I lost my Skittles. Please don't leave. I love you. I'm sorry. <laughs> she didn't threaten me. She didn't hit me. She threatened to leave and I would never see her again. Now, eight years old. Now, as a mother now, I can see how much wisdom and maturity she had to actually use that type of, I guess it was just her nature. Her personality was to use her brain to get what she wanted from me. She wasn't manipulating me, but she used that to get that emotional response from me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this girl was an effing genius. (laughs) I'm serious. And it worked. So she
0: had a really profound effect on your life, even into adulthood.
1: (laughs) Right. My sister had that kind of personality. She was very soft spoken, unlike me. Okay. She didn't look anything like me. She was brown headed. I'm the only redhead who took over. It looks for exactly carbon copy of my my grandmother, my, my real father's mom. Oh, okay. I look exactly like her. Everybody else got brown hair, brown eyes. I have red hair, blue eyes, and I'm so white that I can't even get a tan. My sister would walk outside and look like an Indian goddess, and I was like, I hate you. I don't know why you guys look so gorgeous, and I just look like the milkman's baby. And it became a joke in our family that who child are you? And I was like, I look just like my grandma. You guys, shut up! <laughs> and I was born on her birthday, and I mean, it was oh, a wow. thing. Oh wow! No, that's yeah, cool. right. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: how that, did did Wendy have a lot of friends in school as you guys yeah, were growing ex- up?
1: Exactly, that's exactly what I was about to tell you, and that's why they called us the non-related Irish twins because she was literally the most popular girl in school. She had Tons of friends. Everybody would either call me Howdy Doody, Raggedy Ann, oh. um, Half Pint from Little House on the Prairie, oh, yeah. which I didn't look anything like her. But they would go, "Oh, hi, Half Pint," because I was short. Mm-hmm. I was only five three. My sister was an elegant five nine or five eight. I, I can't tell now. The <laughs> only thing is, my I do come from a obese family, and I was the only one that looked like I was. Two inches around and probably weighed a hundred pounds soaking wet. I've I've always been super thin, mm-hmm. so I I got made fun of. And my sister was the first person who would stand up and say, "Look, you mess with my sister, you're not going to like it. You don't mess with my <laughs> my little sister." So even though she was the most popular, and I was the most teased and detested person walking down the hall I had really long hair I mean it was past my knees and it was super curly and of course when you're that young and you don't know how to deal with curls and people would pull my hair when I walked down the hall and being a redheaded anybody who's redheaded will tell you we are an ultra ultra sensitive head and when we go to the dentist it takes like triple the amount to just numb us up so long story short My sister walked up to this one kid who pulled my hair when I walked down the hall. I was in the second grade, and she was in the third. She walked up behind that guy, pulled him by his collar, turned him around, and because she was so big, she represented, even though she was shorter than this kid, she turned him around, and he sees this big, stocky girl standing in front of me. She goes, did you pull my sister's hair? I saw you when I was down the hall, so don't try to deny it. He said, yes, I did. She just whooped out her fist and punched him straight in the face. She said, you mess with my sister again, I'll kick your ass. (laughs) And I was like, thank you, Wendy. And she goes, don't mention it. Let's go. I mean, she was, again, very bright, very funny, very smart. She had thousands of friends. And I would want to go and hang out. And she would be like, yeah, come on. She was not the typical sister who was like, Oh my God, my little sister and brother are following me. She wanted us to meet with her. She said, no, I want her to have fun too. It's not fun without her. So the next thing I would like to say is there was an incident where we, (laughs) this is kind of stupid, but it's something that really shaped me. Um, We had been walking to school every day and we had a couple of tomato plants on the edge of where we walked. And, It was about a mile and a half from our front door to the bus stop on a pure dirt road (laughs) that half the time, if it rained, we would have to get big old paper or uh, plastic sacks and put them up to the middle of our side because when we would walk down the driveway, we might get stuck in mud and we would be a total mess. So we would put these plastic bags around our legs and walking down to get the bus and one day. There was this one stocky kid who used to harass me every day. His name is not relevant, but he literally would harass me every single day. Well, that day the bus had, you know, it had just rained and we got on the bus and I had picked up a rotten tomato and I was like, oh, I'm going to take this to school and see if I can cut it because we had been practicing with dissecting. And I was like, oh, I'm going to try to cut this instead of that stupid potato that they make us mess with. And my sister's like, "Ooh, that's gross! It's gonna stink." I was like, "I don't care. I don't want to do a stupid potato anymore. I'm gonna I'm gonna dissect this tomato. I'm gonna try to, you know, go around all the mold and all this horrible stuff and just see what I can do." And she's like, "Okay, well, as we got off the bus, that you know, I forgot because I had put it in my lunchbox, and I guess I forgot. So after school." My sister's looking around going, what is that smell? Something is horrible. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, I forgot it because I didn't eat lunch that day. And she's like, oh, God, as soon as we got out of the bus, I want you to throw that on the ground. You're not taking it home. I was like, okay. Well, they had the bus window or the windows in the bus were down. I couldn't have done this if you paid me $5 million to do it. But as we got off the bus, this kid who always harassed us was still sitting in the back of the bus. And I picked up that tomato out of my uh, lunch pail, and I threw it, and God almighty, I have no clue how it happened, but it hit him right in the face. As the bus was driving by, I threw it, not even (laughs) intending to throw it or aim it directly at the bus, and it hit him. And the bus driver the next day said, I had to turn you into the principal. You have to go in and see him today. I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't even know that it had hit the kids. And they stomp us into the principal's office. And I was like, I swear to God, I just threw the tomato. I didn't even know it hit anybody. And they're like, no. I said, you can ask my sister. She was telling me, throw it, throw it, don't take it home. I didn't know that I hit anybody with it. And I'm sitting there crying. So the principal was nice enough to go ahead and send the secretary for Wendy. She came in and he asked her, your sister said you told her to throw the tomato away and to throw it and not let it be on the street. And she says she threw it and it was an accident. And she goes, yeah, she's telling the truth. Nobody was aiming at anybody. So luckily I didn't get in trouble. <laughs> and then later that day, we get on the bus and we walked up, she goes, now, since you didn't get in trouble, you're going to go and apologize to him. Yeah. And I was like, no, you'll know it was me. I'm actually, he goes, nope, you're going to go, and you're going to apologize to him because Mm -hmm. it wasn't on purpose, and you're going to go and say sorry. And she walked with me. She held my hand, and she said, do you have anything to say to him? And I was like, yeah, and you know, whatever his name was, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. It was a complete accident. And he reached out, and he shook my hand. He goes, thank you for apologizing. I didn't think it was on purpose because you weren't standing there cheering and doing a happy dance, but I do say I'm also sorry for pulling your hair that day. So there were multiple times where my sister's reasoning skills, her approach impacted me. And now to this day, even if I get mad and if I say something wrong, I remember my sister saying, okay, even if that person did something wrong to you and you retaliated, even if it wasn't on purpose, always be the first one to apologize. So. It, you know, there's multiple examples I could give, but mm-hmm. anyway. Well, that's, that so, is beautiful.
0: Can you take <laughs> us through then how your niece came to be and then um, like yep. the details of the case and all of that? I'm sure you're right. very um, scripted <laughs> at this point in time with sharing the no, story. No, not really,
1: because whenever I tell it, it's more letting people ask me questions, mm-hmm. me clearing it up and then you know, not really full free range. to just tell chronicologically. And it is jumbled in some places for me as well, sure. because some of the events that took place, I wasn't even living in the same state anymore. Sure. And, I'll kind of take you through it as quickly as I can. So, yeah, I remember I'm just
0: I'm just happy to have you because you mentioned in the beginning how you've listened to others <laughs> yeah. that have gotten it wrong. And it's extremely important for our podcast that we get as you know, the details correct. So, Accurate. I um right. yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to go through this, even as painful as Perfect. it may be for you.
1: Sure. It's not really painful anymore. It's it's the thing that, yes, time heals all wounds to a degree, but I explain it this way. Time has passed, for sure. And it doesn't hurt until I remember it. And when I remember it is when the pain comes back full force. The pain doesn't lessen. The time frame that I remember it lessens. Mm -hmm. I can go on with my life. I can play with my kids. I can go to my kids' college. I can go or university, not college, I mean, there is just a whole gambit of things to distract me in my daily life. Mm -hmm. But when I remember them, it still hits me the same as it did the very first day it happened. So the pain doesn't lessen, but the amount of times I think about it in the day, or the amount of times I think about it throughout the week, lessens Mm -hmm. to where I think about it twice a week, and then twice a month, and then maybe once a year on their birthdays, so mm-hmm. the distance from that is what has helped. But that makes it, sense. It hurts only when you think about it. So now I've gotten to where I can think about them with a lot of happiness and love and affection, and not get mired down. And I'm I'm just losing myself in a melted puddle on the floor mm-hmm. anymore. So good, we've good. evolved. Yes, so we're yep. good.
0: <laughs> good.
1: So as for how Cynthia came into being. I remember a family meeting being called. My sister was extremely nervous. Now, I have to kind of backtrack a tiny bit to where it'll lead us up to that. So in high school, I cannot tell you what grade it was. It could have been eighth grade or ninth, but Wendy had such amazing grades her whole childhood career in school. Whereas I got straight A's and everything but math and it became a running joke in our family because in kindergarten, they present you a concept of addition first, which I think is backwards. They gave us addition and told us one plus one is one. one, I mean, one plus one is two. One plus two is three, you know, the basic concept. But then when they told us a subtraction, they said zero plus or zero minus one is zero. Zero minus four You know, so I didn't really get the concept. And in kindergarten, I wrote zero, 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 all the way down the page. And then put my head on the desk as instructed when you're done, put your head down and don't talk. And I got a paddling in school for this. And then I went home crying. And my mom was like, why are you crying? I was like, I did my work right. And I got it. But I got beat up in school. (laughs) And my mom flipped out. (laughs) Excuse me. She flipped out and went and talk to the principal. And instead of saying, yeah, my child didn't understand the concept you presented, she wasn't being disrespectful, but for you to paddle her in front of the entire class for something she misunderstood was wrong. Mm -hmm. I never got an apology from the teacher, and to this day, I have been so traumatized by math that all through high school, I straight up, I never got concept of math. So Wendy, on the other hand, was a genius. And made straight A's and was loved by all teachers. And me coming in behind her, the math teacher after two days was like, oh, well, you're damn sure not like your sister, are you? And I'm like, nope. (laughs) So those were really big shoes to fill. But regardless, in seventh or eighth, maybe ninth grade, her grades were so amazing that since my stepfather, which I only call daddy, I'm just going to refer to him as daddy from now on. Okay. He was a physics professor assistant at Central State University, and my mother worked at the library as the head librarian for 27 years, and my dad was there for half of that time. I I can't give you a specific time, but for 20-something years at least. And he told my sister, I've been speaking to other professors we're going to have you tested and see if you're eligible for this new program called a Barakolot, or I I don't know how to pronounce it. So it was basically while you're still in high school, you can take university or college level credit. Yeah. Right. So it had just started that year and they took my sister, got her tested. She passed. So she started going to the university every day. Now, my father and mother were involved in something called the International Student Host Family Program. Oh, yeah. We, oh, so you've heard of it? Yeah. Wonderful. Yep. Okay, so we had people coming to our house. We had a Nigerian gentleman who came. He hung out with us. We would all watch movies, eat dinner. And sometimes we had 12 to 15 guys just show up and two girls. They were from China. We had one lady trying to teach us Mandarin. I mean, it was so wonderful that we were around people from Kuwait, Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan. You know, we just had oh, all so these cool. Right. So we had that edge of being exposed to all of these amazing people. We learned a lot about their cultures. We would do all sort of fun events with them and go to the zoo and you know, it was like we were there pretend family. Yeah. So they didn't feel alone. And that's how my sister and I both, but at different times that's how she met her husband-to-be. Okay. Unfortunately, he took her back to his dorm one day and he was born in Sri Lanka or something, but he had lived in Kuwait with his family. His name was Christopher Brito. And unbeknownst to all of us, he took my 15-year-old sister back to his dorm. I guess they had a little bit of what I would call statutory rape because he was over 21 and my sister right. was 15. Yep, yep. And she called this family meeting and was very nervous and was crying. And we were like, just tell us what's wrong, what's going on. I thought she was going to say, I fell in love with Chris. We all knew she was talking to him that he wants to get married and she wants to break up because she's too young. That's what I thought. Okay. And then she popped out, well, I don't know what y'all are going to do. I don't know if you're going to like send me away. If you're going to make me get an abortion, I'm oh, pregnant. Oh and gosh. everybody's sitting and looking at each other going, did she say she was pregnant? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it was the furthest thing from our mind. Sure. Now you're going back into a time frame where teen pregnancy did start become a thing. It, it wasn't a thing at that time. And my dad was like, oh, my God, I can never show my face at school again. I can't go back to work now.
2: Oh, no. Mom, you're
1: going to have to quit your job, too, because everybody is going to find out Wendy's pregnant. And they're going to put two and two together. And now they're going to say I'm a bad parent. You're a bad parent. And that they're, you know, we, what are we going to do? So the first thing my dad did, got in his car and used to realize we were about uh, an hour and a half drive away from Edmund at that time. And he loaded all of us up in the car. And we drove to Edmond. We went to the dorms. Knocked on Christopher's door. We got in and he told his roommate, in no uncertain terms, I don't care where you're going to go, but you're not staying here. We're having a family meeting and Chris is involved. Get out. So his roommate left. And my dad stood at the door. He told me and Wendy to sit down. And my mom and him were standing there just like livid. And they said, we don't care that you are, you know, we could get you charged right now with statutory rape and right. have you taken right now arrested. Yeah. But what we're going to do is ask you, what is your plan? Are you going to marry her right now? No questions asked. Or what is, what is your plan? And it took him about 13 seconds to say, yes, I was planning on marrying her. I told her to tell you guys that she's pregnant so that we can make arrangements to get married. And my dad and mom kind of calmed down and they were like, okay, we've got a couple of family members that are preachers. We're going to talk to them. We're going to find out what the youngest age you can get married is. You know, we just want to make sure as above board as possible what we're going to do. So my sister, that March, turned 16. And that's when they got married. Oh, okay. My mom and dad basically forced them to get married. Wendy was six months pregnant when they got married. Mm-hmm. And I guess word of it got around to when him sending baby pictures to his family. Oh, I'm a dad now. I'm married. Oh, wow. His family were Muslim. And flipped out that you married a non-Muslim girl, American, on top of that. We already had a wife chosen for you. How dare you go against our wishes? It took them three to four months before, you know, they started reacting. And on the sixth month of my niece's six-month birthday, his family showed up from Kuwait, took his passport away from him, and said, we are leaving with your passport, with your driver's license, all of your official document and we are now officially not giving you another penny unless you give her a divorce and you leave with us Oh. and he took the coward's way out and went with his family and he told my sister as he was leaving I'm really sorry I love you and my sister just looked at him and said how can you walk away from your wife and child well my family means everything to me and I can't turn my back on them I did something against their wishes and now Like your family forced me to marry you without getting, you know, so I wouldn't get arrested. And now my family's upset that I was basically bullied into marriage. Well, we didn't bully you into having sex with her. But now that you have produced a child out of that, you are responsible. And he said, no, I'm not. His family and my parents got into a screaming match about how we would never hear him. We would never talk to him. He would never see another picture of his child he wanted nothing to do with us and that if we ever contacted them they would never respond that was no uncertain terms so he walked away from cynthia and wendy and i think it was very hurtful to her she felt alone depressed i'm 16 i've got a kid absolutely i don't have any boyfriend you know etc
0: absolutely so,
1: I can see how that would be an um, indelible mark on somebody who's that oh, of young. Of course, of and, course. That, you know,
0: that had a huge impact on shaping her life. Right, for absolutely.
1: Sure. And it was very detrimental to her mental health, and she cried on my shoulder many a time. And I told her, look, all of us are here. We're all going to help you raise Cynthia. Uh, Cynthia basically from day one was my responsibility because basically after two weeks she decided well since you know I'm going back my Chris and I are together and blah 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 he works full-time he wants me to get a job so we can get a better apartment and I became built-in babysitter and took care of Cynthia basically within two weeks of her life I was her full 24-hour day caregiver her name You were Aunt Nanny? Uh, No, I was her mama. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So the reason being that they got married and right after the baby was born, I think that they had moved into this really horrible economy type of apartment. And Mm -hmm. Cynthia was probably a week and a half old. Well, Cynthia, I came over to visit and she was covered from head to toe in flea bites. And I got so mad. I said, look. You guys, if you want to live in a flea-infested apartment, that's perfectly okay with me, but you're not keeping Cynthia here. Can I take her to mom and dad's and take care of her, and every day you come and visit her, but please don't leave her in this type of environment. She's a newborn. She shouldn't have bites over her entire body. She was fussing, crying, miserable. And I did. She said, yeah, that's fine. She packed up all of her little clothes. I said, nope, all I want is a bag of diapers that's unopened. I'm not taking anything that could possibly be infested with fleas. Just give me her diapers that are in the unopened bag, and we'll figure it out at home. Don't worry. Yeah. So we took her back, and, you know, I basically took care of her 24-7, and she was my child. And my sister literally cried. And said i cannot believe i have such a fantastic sister who's younger than me and is willing to be a full-time mother and i wouldn't trust her with anybody but you i know you'll love her more than i do the same level that i do and nobody you you just don't have that kind of guarantee from anybody else so she was very happy that i decided to take her she said thank you for loving her thank you for being a good sister and I basically was 24 hours, seven days a week with Cynthia from age of two weeks and up. Until the what that, age? Until, okay. So that's kind of going to transgress into something that I have to tell you about. Oh, okay. For
2: sure. Yeah, sure, okay. sure.
1: Yep. So <laughs> I was taking care of Cynthia, and in the interim... I turned 15 and a half, and I, or 15, I'm sorry, and I met my future husband-to-be, who I'm still married to now, uh-huh. and we started conversing, talking to each other, and I can't really go into exact time frames just because it's so screwed up, but after that time frame of 15 years old with when, well, how can I word it? Okay. That's when she got a divorce, and he took off when Cynthia was six months old. Uh-huh. And I must have been just hitting 15 and a half at that point, or almost fifteen and a half. and a half. Then she came one day to play with Cynthia, spend time with her after work, and she had gotten a job at Brahms, like two months after Chris left her. So Cynthia was approximately eight months old. At that point, she told me she met this guy at work at Brahms. And his name is Chad. Chad, no. And I was like, "Is he a nice guy?" And then she goes, "I don't know. He seems to be. He wants to go on a date." And I was like, "Okay, have fun. Live your best life. You know, do whatever you have to do. <laughs> you know, whatever you want me to say." And she started dating him. Now I can't tell you the timeline of how long they dated because it wasn't really a date like a normal guy would come and pick you up, take you out on a fun event, and drop you off at home. It oh, wasn't okay. that. It was more like, you're going to go out in my car, we're going to canoodle for a while, and I'm going to drop you off at home. Right, right. That was was
0: what I was getting from what you were saying.
1: Uh (laughs) Yeah, it was more like, okay, let's go over here, have sex in the car, and I'm going to drop you off at home. I don't know how long that occurred. I don't know how long it was. I was very young. I was taking care of a a newborn. Right. I can't give you any timeline other than the days blurred together. Sure. And that I makes just sense like, yeah I just can't remember now I do recall when I moved back into my parents home because my future husband had proposed to me and he wanted to get married but we, he couldn't afford his apartment anymore and I came into my parents home and they knew that I was engaged and they said well It might be frowned on by others, but he's a really good guy, and he treats you really well. He helps you with Cynthia. If he wants to move in, we are fine with that. Now, he moved in, and he became like daddy when between his classes to Cynthia, and he was going, you know, he was very involved with Wendy. Wendy adored my husband. My husband adored Wendy and Cynthia both, so it was a really good family type of you know environment that Cynthia was in and that made my sister very happy she said Cynthia's stable she's thriving I already had her learning her ABCs and she was about a year and a half old and could sing the ABC song so my sister was extremely happy with Cynthia being in a stable home with a lot of love affection she couldn't have been more thrilled She would come and see her when she could. Sometimes it was every other day. Sometimes it was every day. It just depended on what she was doing with Chad. Sure. Then we found out that she was pregnant. Okay. And Jonathan was on his way. So Chad being the person that he is said, can I live with your family too? And we were like, well, we're heading out the door pretty quickly. You know, we're just saving to to move into our own apartment. And we, you know, then we won't be here anymore. I'm taking care of Cynthia. So therefore I can't get a job. And my husband is working, you know, part-time and going to school full-time. We don't have a lot of money. Sure. That's the only reason we're still living here. But then we got married and we were found out around that time. Well, after Jonathan was born, he was born November. Oh gosh, what day was he born? I've got two kids myself in November, November 22nd. Okay was when he was born so that's wendy's second child yeah that's jonathan the one Mm -hmm. who caused all the things that happened was brought on with jonathan's birth okay so jonathan was born november 22nd and i've got his birth certificate right here in my hand i just want to confirm because i take it out of the little envelope yeah so he was born it says Mr. and Mrs. Chad E. welcome no welcomed Jonathan Michael No on the Sunday, the twenty second of November, nineteen eighty seven. So at that point, I was already married to my husband. We got or no, I got married June tenth, nineteen eighty eight. Sorry. We okay. weren't married yet. Not yet. Yep. So he yeah, so my husband had moved in, but at that time we were still just fiance and et cetera. And I was all gosh, what was it? Um I'm trying to think of one thing here, because when he was born, literally within a few weeks is when my sister started getting confused, she wasn't able to talk properly, and she couldn't swallow, she couldn't eat, and she would like take a drink of juice, and it would just like fall out of her mouth, and she would take a bite of food, and just couldn't even figure out how to chew, and we're like, what's wrong with you, it's just food, just move your mouth up and down and chomp it. And she just like, she couldn't even follow basic instructions. And the night before my husband woke me up and was like, the baby's crying and, and he's been crying for a while. And I don't know if he's being extra fussy, you know, maybe you should go offer your sister a hand and see if you can take the baby and and get him to quit crying. You, I said, okay, fine. So I walked in before I even in the door, all I could smell was marijuana. It was so heavy and so strong. And I got really mad and I slammed open the door and I said, what the hell is wrong with you sitting here smoking weed and a child is a newborn and you're sitting here, you know, smoking that even in the same room as him. Mm-hmm. Now we, I was upset because they, they were both smokers and they would smoke around him and that made me mad too. Sure. I was like, if you have to go smoke, smoke outside, you yeah. know, well, my that mom was normal for the time. Well, yeah, everybody in our family smoked at that time. My husband and I smoked, my parents smoked, Wendy and Chad smoked. So we didn't think that we should, you know, like have a cigarette hanging in our mouth and holding the baby. But that's what he was doing. And that's what my sister was doing. And to have marijuana around him really pissed me off. And I slammed open the door and I was like, why aren't you taking care of your baby? Why is he crying? And she just looked at me with this really weird, confused look like, what? And I was like, you're so stoned. You don't even know I'm talking to you. Right. Lay back down. Give me the baby. And I snatched him away because he was like laying in a little bitty, not a crib, but the one for bassinets. And I oh, yeah. dashed him up, got his bottle, got his little diaper bag and left the room and proceeded to take care of him for the rest of the evening with my husband. So we had Cynthia in our room and now we had Jonathan in our room and we were taking care of him and I was so mad. And then the next morning is when she started you know, exhibiting really odd behavior. She couldn't swallow. She's sitting there pouring juice in her mouth and it's just like running all over the place. And we were like, quit clowning are you that stone that you can't even eat anymore you know oh, what's yeah. wrong with you Yeah, that's what you're thinking yeah and then when we were growing up right wrong or indifferent we were allowed to say any cuss word that we wanted to we okay. didn't get in trouble for saying oh damn or something of that nature but the f word was off limits mm-hmm. we if we said that we would probably get hit when we woke up we would know never to say that word around them ever again so my sister i it's clear as a bell to me we had a refrigerator that she walked up she opens the refrigerator and you know the butter bowls are recycled by some families like us who couldn't afford tupperware at the time so my mom had put some i i think it was um it, it's like biscuits or something and chicken oh, chicken and biscuit yeah, type yeah. of soup yeah i can't
2: I know just, what you're talking chicken about and dumplings,
1: chicken, chicken and, and dumplings. dumplings yep yeah, and my dad had made some the night before, and it was it was in that container. And my sister proceeded to open up the refrigerator and take that bowl and turned on the flame of the stove and put the bowl directly on the flame. And my mom is like, what are you doing? You can't do that. You can't heat it up like that. She looked at my mom and just said the F word, like not in malice or and she was like, Uh, and huh. my mom said, right then and there, I knew something was wrong uh-huh. because they knew they could say any word, but that word without a problem. And we all loaded up in the car, took her to the uh, Hardy's drive-thru because my dad kept on saying, please, what sounds good? What do you want to eat? What do you want to eat? And finally, we... We went through the Hardy's drive through and he said, do you want a biscuit? Do you want, you know, so we got her something. I don't even remember what it was. And she was like, okay, and proceeded to go ahead and try to eat it and still couldn't. So we got her to the emergency room. They went ahead and checked her out and they said, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on, but when we put the light in her eyes to track her eye movement, she's not following the light properly. She's not responding to verbal commands. We are going to go ahead and admit her and run some tests because we didn't know what was wrong. Oh, sure. We were, yeah, and we didn't find out for almost three and a half weeks after that. And at that point, she was already in a coma.
0: Oh my so, gosh, really? Right. Three and a half
2: yeah, weeks.
1: Now, yeah, it took us three and a half weeks to finally be told what the diagnosis was. But let me backtrack a little here during the interim of jonathan being born me taking care of jonathan and cynthia jonathan uh, i mean chad would not go find a job he would sit in the living room he would smoke weed all day my dad asked him multiple times that i am courtesy letting you live here look at how aisha's husband is behaving with us he gives us money he cleans the house. He takes care of two children that aren't even his or his, you know, right, future wife. Right. He's working. He's he's going to school. He's actually trying to be a part of this family. He would cook for my family. He would be so nice because I would be really tired. And my mom was like, "Can somebody clean the house before we get home? The litter box needed to be cleaned. All of this work, I hand on my my family." My husband was doing the work as if he owned the home and was running a home. Hey, he I, was Aisha, how, Aisha? Old? How, how old? Yeah. Was, how old was Wendy and Chad at this point? At that point, I was almost 17, or 1987. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, 80, 77. So 70. yeah, 17.
0: Yep, if you were born yeah, 17. in 17. So mm-hmm. Wendy
1: had to be 18 at this point. Okay, okay. And Chad, I never knew his age. I can't tell you anything about Chad except his name and that he was always a loser. He, oh. Everybody said he was a loser. Nobody liked him from day one. He actually, what I was saying about that my he wouldn't get a job, my dad challenged him, that look at what Aisha's husband is doing. He's helping us out. He cooks dinner. And, you know, he goes and gets groceries and he's an actual functioning part of this household. At that point, I remember hearing my father berating him that, why aren't you trying to look for a job? You don't go to school. You sit around and smoke weed all day watching television. And I'm very graciously allowing you to stay in my home because you and your wife are, you know, your my daughter's pregnant by you. And I don't want to throw you out on your ear because unfortunately I know my daughter, she'll follow you and she's going to be living on the street. So, you know, there has to be some give here. You need to find a job. He got up in my dad's face and was screaming, Oh, you're such a dumbass, old man. I'll kill you. I'll kick your ass. And my dad just is an ex Marine drill sergeant. Okay. So my dad just stood there patiently waiting for him to quit running around like a hopping monkey And he finally said, excuse me, you can get out of my house today. Yeah. If you ever speak to me like that again, you're going to find yourself on the ground. Don't ever speak to me like that again. And if you think that it is okay for you to speak to me like that, pack your shit and get out of my house. And he just turned around and goes, oh, F you, you stupid old man. And he went back in the room, slammed the bedroom door and locked it. And that was it. My dad said, now if he comes out of that room and he doesn't have a backpack, then we're going to have a problem. I think at that point, Beverly, his mother, Chad's mother was called. She came over. I think he left with her. They drove around for a while. And then his mother made him come in and apologize to my parents. He said, I'll never do that again, which was a lie. He did it a few more times. But regardless, the entire pregnancy was a nightmare in my home. Oh, it yeah, it sounds like not it. Good. It sounds right. like it. Okay, at so what point, was the
0: diagnosis? Wait, with, okay, uh, that's what
1: I'm getting to. Okay, that's okay, what I'm getting to. So at that point, I kind of just backtracked so you would get an idea of how he had behaved all sure. nine months. yeah. And behaved like a total ass with my parents, with mm-hmm. me, with Arshad, with the kids. He didn't have any interest in Jonathan or Cynthia. He only came in a few times. I've got one picture where he was holding Cynthia. And I took a picture of him holding her. I was amazed. I was like, oh, Wendy, look, he actually held Cynthia today. And I showed her that picture. And he, she was like, damn, I can't believe he was holding her. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. at that point, Wendy was in the hospital. Within two days or three days, he, we hadn't seen him at our home. And, you know, I can't be at the hospital with a newborn and a two-year-old or a year and a half old, whatever the age was of Cynthia. So my husband and I are home. And my parents are going back and forth to work, up to the hospital. On the third or fourth visit to the hospital, the nurses handed my parents a sheet of paper and said, yeah, Jonathan's father was here. And he said to give this to, to the tailors when they come to visit Wendy. There you go. My parents opened it up and it's divorce papers. Oh, my gosh. And like, what the hell? Um, your wife is in the hospital less than a week and you're giving her a divorce What's going on, and it's at this point
0: is Wendy not in a coma? She is, is she
1: was in a coma, she was at this point in time. Yes, within a week of her going into the hospital, she went into a coma. They didn't know why, they were trying to diagnose why. And he gives divorce
0: papers while she's in a coma, yes. Wow,
1: okay, and it was literally within a couple of days of her going into a coma it was I think she had been in the hospital at the most a week and a half to two weeks I can't give you the exact time again like I said I wasn't personally going back and forth to the hospital of because you're taking care of the one, kids right, yeah right so my dad would substitute with my mom and me and my mom would go or after a week I would go with my dad and my mom would stay home with the kids and my husband So it was kind of back and forth where I think I got to see Wendy once or twice and she was already in a coma. They just didn't know why. So I was surprised that Chad had given my sister a divorce out of the blue and we were confused. What is going on? How come he gave her a divorce? So in the interim, we were told that it's multiple sclerosis. And they said that it can be brought on three or four different ways that they know it's happened in a certain pattern but they still don't know why it happens to everybody. And they said that the typical reasons are a head injury or head trauma. Number two, it could be brought on by very, very high fever or three pregnancies between the ages of 26 to 20, or 24 to 26 oh, also can 18, bring on- right? Well, right. So they said that it could be that that's the latter category because as we all know, she gave birth to a child when she was 16, and now she gave birth again, and it could have been that her body was just unable to sustain that kind of trauma at that young of an age, and her body, my- mylar coating in her brain is gone. And that's what conducts the electrical pulses to tell your arm to move or to blink or to for your memory, anything. And that mylar coating is now gone. So we have to figure out what's going on, how to get the coma. You know, we are just in a holding pattern at that point that she may not ever even wake up. Here's where the the whole chain starts with Jonathan no longer being with our family is because of me. And if I would have had hindsight is 2020, I wouldn't have gotten, okay, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So I'm just going to go ahead and say this. At that point, my husband and I got married June 10th, 1988, and I found out that I was pregnant, and I remember going to the nursing home where my sister had been moved from the regular hospital to a nursing home, and I went and visited her. I remember holding her hand. I was crying, and, oh, I found out I'm going to be a mom now, and I'm just excited to tell you. We, we had so many discussions over you know, oh well. When I grow up, I'm not going to do what mom and dad did. I'm going to do it this way, and I'm going to do it that way. And she's and still in remember, a coma
0: at this point in time. And she was in
1: a coma. Okay, okay. She was in a coma. I never got to speak to my sister ever again. Okay. Only when, since when she before the night that I shouted at her, I I didn't get to have a regular conversation with her again. I did get to speak to her again, but it was again I can't reveal that yet because it'll be kind of out of sequence. So. At this point, I was in a, I had just found out I was pregnant and I was holding my sister's hand, telling her now I was raising Cynthia and Jonathan and I had such severe morning sickness that I was basically put on full bed rest because I could not quit throwing up. Yeah. And I told my mom and dad, look, Arshad and I have saved up enough money for the last year and a half. We've been saving money. And now that we're going to have a child. I want to go ahead and we found an apartment, but it's about six or seven miles from here. And I'm not going to be able to take Cynthia with me and take her away from you guys. She needs to have you and dad in her life every day. And then y'all can take her up to see Wendy as well. So I don't want to take her with me. And I can't keep Jonathan. I can't even get up out of bed without throwing up. And yeah. well, we're he's in the middle too of young At this
0: point in time. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah, and I said, now she's attached to all three of us. We are her core family, and I don't want to take her out of the only home she's known. Mm -hmm. I would rather let her stay here with you guys. Now, Jonathan is a whole new bag of worms. I cannot take care of a newborn. So what I asked my mom and dad that you guys can't take her or him because you work all day. Cynthia is old enough to go to daycare, but Jonathan is not. So what can we do? So we reached out to Beverly and I told Beverly, look, I can't take care of a newborn. I'm being put on bed rest. I'm so sick. And, and is then Beverly
0: we... Chad's mom? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. Grandmother. Yep. So that's so Jonathan's ran... grandmother. Right. So yep. we asked her and she agreed. Now, at that point, my husband and I had saved enough money for the apartment, but you need a bed. You need a blah, blah, blah everything. So, Beverly was so nice when she found out that we didn't have a bed. She brought a bed to our home, a mattress and box spring, hooked it, you know, brought it in our own vehicle to our apartment. She had brought a couple of pans for us and silverware, and it was all wrapped up so nicely. And she was so nice to us. And then we needed help to co sign for a car because we had, uh, even though we had a down payment, they required a co sign. So she even was so nice to co-sign that oh, wow. for us. Oh, wow. Okay. But here's the rub. She wouldn't quit flirting with my husband. And I was like, Arshid, should... Beverly's a little too friendly with you. She'll get real close and sit by you and stare at at your eyes. And I feel like she's flirting with you and she's coming on to you. And he was like, no, she's just oh, really that's nice. not good. No, she's flirting with you. Mm-hmm. She's literally coming on to you. sometimes and guys then, are oblivious to that <laughs> and I was like no she's coming on to you and he didn't believe me and at this point I'm about six seven months pregnant he's like oh you're just being hormonal I was like I'm not hormonal she's coming on to you so we went you know back and forth about this and I started kind of distancing myself from her I was like I don't want to go see her well one day my husband pushed and pushed and pushed and I was about eight months pregnant He's like, oh, well, let's go visit Beverly. And I was like, okay, fine. So I called her. Hey, Bev, are you at home? You know, we wanted to drop by and visit you. Just Arshid was, my husband Arshid, was probably bored just sitting at home. So he wanted to go somewhere and, you know, okay, let's go see Beverly. When we got to her, she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm free. Y'all can come over. When we got there, the trailer that she had lived in was completely empty. No cars, all the decorations outside were gone. I looked in the windows, oh, wow. no stick of furniture was even in that house. So I asked my husband, should I call her back? He goes, nope. She gave a very indirect message that she doesn't want us to be around her. If she would have wanted us to, she would have given us our new address. Obviously, she wanted you to find out on your own that she no longer wants to be involved with us by, you know, going to an empty home. So I said, fine. We never, you know, worried about speaking to her after that. So in the interim, I was, um, my husband and I were living in our own apartment. We would go over and spend time every day with Cynthia. Jonathan was at that point already living with Beverly. We never reached out to see, oh, can we come visit Jonathan? My focus was Cynthia, to be very honest. Mm -hmm. My focus was She's almost two. We've got this amazing relationship with her. She's like my daughter. And we would go visit her every day. At that point, I was doing a lot better with morning sickness. I no, I couldn't have been eight months pregnant because I had placental abruptness right as I started the seventh month of pregnancy. So that was when I was six months pregnant. I apologize. Okay, that's all right. Yeah, so July 11th, 1988. I went to sit up in my room. I was waking up for the day. My husband had already left to go to work, gave me a kiss on the forehead. I'm, I'll am i see you later. And I was like, okay, now that day he worked at Hardee's. You know, it's a fast food company that was bought out by Carl's Jr. Yeah, if you've yeah. ever heard yep. of oh, okay. we, we, so we have them up here. Yep. Oh, <laughs> right. So at that time it was Hardee's. Now we lived in a basement apartment that you had to go down three or four stairs And then our apartment was the first apartment in the little hallway on the left. If you walked out of that, you would walk out of this, you know, you go out of the apartment, go up Mm -hmm. three or four stairs, and there's a payphone right outside of our front door. So that's very important because that morning I woke up and, you know, was thinking, okay, he left. I'm not going to keep sleeping. I need to get up and, you know, do some exercising, walk around, you know, get the blood flowing, have some food. I sat up and I was like, "Oh God, my water just broke." I felt instantaneous soaking water. I opened the covers off of me, and it wasn't water; it was blood. And I was started to scream. Oh, no. oh, sure, I was like, sure. Oh you six months. My pregnant. God, yeah, right. And I'm by myself. We yeah. didn't have cell phones back then. Right. We didn't even have a phone in our home. Yeah. So I had just started the seventh month of pregnancy. And I'm thinking, this is way too early. Am I dying? Oh, my God. So what do I do? I run out the front door up the stairs. To And the I'm pay phone? standing and calling the payphone. Yeah. And I'm calling parties. And his boss was like, oh, well, he's not here. And I was like, what do you mean he's not there? And I'm thinking, is my husband having an affair? He told me he was going to work. Where the hell is he? Right, right. And I run back down and I'm just crying I'm like oh my god what's going, what's going on and I'm standing in the bathtub just bleeding profusely and not knowing what to do I literally did not know what to do and all of a sudden I hear my husband screaming my name Aisha, Aisha, where are you and he goes I literally walked in thought it was a crime scene oh luckily, yeah I bet. <laughs> so luckily that day he had forgotten his wallet and he oh. went to work got in the parking lot and turned around and drove right back home. Oh good Roughly. he wasn't having an affair. Right, right. He wasn't <laughs> he just having forgetful. An affair. <laughs> And I was like, I, he sees me in the bathroom and he thought I had gotten a text. He said, oh, my God, the front door's open. There's blood from all the way from the post bone. There's multiple trails of blood. What the hell is going on? And I said, no, I thought my water broke. Well, what do we do? We very calmly line the seats with a towel, and we drive to Children's Hospital, which was a 30-minute drive away in downtown Dallas. I'm in uh, Oklahoma City. We get there, and they immediately hook me up to all these monitors. They ask what happened. I said, is it hurting? I was like, well, not really. It's just like, little cramping, but am I dying? They're like, no, but the baby might be. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and pull the baby out. And I was like, what is the baby going to survive? She's so young. We already knew at that point it was a girl. Uh And they said, "Um, we can't tell you anything. We're just going to, and my husband said, they wheeled you in at like maybe 1245 in the morning. And they brought the baby out at 104. Wow. and rushed her down the hallway and that little neonatal unit took her to the neonatal ward and I had a full-on cesarean under full anesthesia it wasn't like a calm you know okay the dad can be at your neck we'll put up a little no right, it was right. none of that it was right. an emergency, emergency. Cesarean. sure sure right okay so when I woke up my husband was gone he wasn't in the room and I was like, where's my baby? And they said, oh, well, she's on the other hospital. You would have to go over the skywalk. And I said, challenge accepted. I got up out of that bed and I made a turtle crawl um, all the way to the elevator, went up to the fourth floor, walked all the way across the stuff, and I got to go see my oh, infant. Gosh. But then I have no clue where my husband was. And I'm sitting there just, they wouldn't even let me hold her. You know, I just had my right. hand in the incubator, just sitting there crying and Anyway, I remember at that point when when we finally got to bring her home, it was three months later when she was finally heavy enough and, and to let the us meantime,
0: take And in the meantime, Wendy is still in a coma right.
1: while you guys was, are
0: going through all of this.
1: Yeah. Right. And Wendy was still in a coma. I was going back and forth to the hospital every day because I wanted to nurse and I would have to take my milk four times a day to the hospital. Yeah, It was yeah. just my focus at that point was hyper intensive on my child may not live. I, I want to go and spend as much time with her as I can. I want to give mm-hmm. her the best chance in of life. Right. I want to nurse all of this. So finally we, we got to bring her home and this was October the 12th, a few days before my birthday. I was like, I got the best birthday present ever. And I was so happy that I got to bring her home, I got to spend time with her. And literally she passed away on November twelfth, nineteen eighty eight. So she was four months and one day old. And that's why November is so hard for me. Jonathan was born November twenty second. My eldest is November twenty fourth. My middle my baby's November seventeenth. And I tell everybody, God took one of my children away from me in November and gave two back. So I, am so I try sorry. to put a positive yeah. spin on sure, that. Oh, sure. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah. So um, at that point, Wendy must have started coming out of the coma because she was at the house in a wheelchair and I don't know when she came home. I can't tell you sure, what day she came home. Sure, because you were going home. through
0: your own things.
1: Right. Definitely. Right. I did remember, right. And I remember we were all happy she's home. And my mom and dad bought these special phones with these huge buttons on them so she could call if she had to. And I remember it being, uh, oh, hi, Wendy, you're back home. Great. I'm so happy. And she was going through rehab. She got a job where she was sorting glass for the blind and deaf where, you know, it's like a handicap type of job because she couldn't walk well. And I know my family was helping her through that and getting her back into the workforce, trying to help her feel normal, helping her learn how to speak again, how to to walk, how to feed herself. It was a very intense moment for her to go through learning everything again. And now I'm like, okay, I don't have to focus on her being in a coma anymore. I'm living my life. She's living hers. Great. Okay. So then- She was got to be reunited with Cynthia. Cynthia was like, I'm going to help my mama, you know, at that time, you know, just back into normal routine. Wonderful. The day my daughter died, she came to the funeral. Cynthia was at the funeral, but I don't think she could connect with me properly because it was Thanksgiving day and my husband and I came over to eat dinner with the family. And that's why I said I never had a normal conversation with my sister before she went into a coma, that was the end of our normal conversation. Sure, that makes sense. So, right. So at that time, when I, we went over to have Thanksgiving dinner with the family and my husband had bought me this really sweet little container of lipstick. Don't ask me why, but I decided to wear it that day. And I told you I'm super white and lipstick was a dark red that I normally wouldn't have worn, but because he gave it to me as a gift. And I'm only mentioning the stupid color of lipstick because my sister was sitting in her wheelchair at the table and I came in. Now, because I was always thin, my sister always used to say, oh, you're so much prettier than me because you're so skinny. I wish I was skinny. Well, she took one look at me and I don't know if it was jealousy that I'm healthy, walking around, talking, everything's normal. I'm holding my baby. Everything is great. And she looks at me and goes, oh, my God, do you think that that color of lipstick is good for you? It doesn't look good. It's too dark. And I was like, my sister has got a personality change because she would have uh, never said that. Sure. Like, yeah, that doesn't sound like the
0: person you described in the beginning.
1: Right. And I was so taken aback that I just remember looking at her and I was like, yeah, I agree. It, it is really dark, but Arshad got it for me as a gift, so I wanted to wear it. And she was like, whatever, and just kind of shook her head. And then two minutes later, she was like, oh, when did you guys get here? How long have you been here? I was like, oh, we've been here for a minute, you know? And yeah. then I realized she didn't, she couldn't even remember talking right. to me. And right. I realized at that, that moment, whatever she said, blow it off. Because sure. even if it, it's, you know, who cares? Yeah. So that was the last time. I got to speak to my sister because after our daughter had passed away, I was not able to really get back into a functioning mood. I was very disheartened. I was sure. depressed, but I wasn't in the mood to go running around talking to people. I just wanted to crawl in a corner and and cry. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to live. I, I wasn't trying to kill myself, but I just didn't want to be an adult anymore i'm like i'm done adulting i just want to be a little kid again and i'm just gonna sit here and cry so i remember our brother who is a physician said why don't y'all come here to new york we'll keep you distracted you you'll you know you'll get a change of scenery you won't go back to a dreary apartment where your child is no longer present yeah why don't y'all move here to new york you guys moved to new york all right right so we yeah so we moved to new york About two months after our daughter passed away. So you're talking early 1989. Okay. And we moved. And at that point, I didn't get to see my sister again. That was like the last time I saw her was at that Thanksgiving dinner that we had as a family. And I got the news literally in 1992. I get a phone call from my mom saying, I mean, she was crying so hard she couldn't even talk. Sure. And there were a couple of letters that my sister had written to me. I've got one that was, um, she had started writing it in June. I didn't get it until July. And I don't know if she'd forgotten to mail it, you know, things happen, but I've got a picture from Cynthia and, you know, she had signed her name at the top in her, you know, horrible one birth rate <laughs> yeah. And it was in 1990. And then there were a few phone calls where, I would call her once I did come down and visit from New York. And I got to spend time with her, Leon, my little brother, my uncle, Ronnie, Cynthia. We all went camping. But Wendy was more interested in hanging out with Leon. Now, how that relationship happened, I can't even I'm tell sure. you. Because sure, because you lived weren't in there. Resort. Yeah. Right. So okay. I just know that, oh, Wendy's getting remarried. Okay. While she was still in the coma, we had her... Um, sterilized you know they went ahead and, and cut her tubes and gave her tubal ligation because we don't want her to have any more children we oh don't know gosh. what it would do to her body and because it they was thought it decision. was her
0: having children that put her that, that put her right. in this predicament got ya got right. ya
1: mm-hmm. so the doctor recommended she's sure. very young she's already got two children and because we so strongly suspect that this happened If she ever gets pregnant again, it's not even whether it's going to damage her. It could could kill kill her. her. Yeah. And that's why my parents made the executive decision that that we're going to go ahead and do this. And I told my mom and dad if she ever wants to have another child, my husband and I will carry it for her. She doesn't have to worry about never getting to have children again. We will carry her child for her. No problem. So that was done with a very happy heart that Mm -hmm. we can go ahead and sterilize her. And she's not cutting off ever having a child again. We're good. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So she meets Leon at some point in time and they're going to get married between 1989 and then 1992 when you get the phone call.
1: Well, they were, I don't know when they got married. I just know that she had met Leon. His brother worked at the same hospital that my sister was in, or he also worked at the same hospital. Somehow he was, he met Wendy. At the hospital, and he was helping out with her rehab and her oh, physical therapy. Okay, okay. And they fell in love, and then she got that job sorting glass and all of that stuff. Yeah. But I wasn't present when Leon came into the picture initially. I only met him when I came for a visit for the to camping. visit my parents. Mm-hmm. Right. And I went to see Wendy and. I hung out at their house and then we went camping. And then the next day I went back to New York. So it was more like a meet and greet Leon. Hi, how are you? Not really connected, but I just noticed that he was sitting and drinking and, and you know, smoking, not, I didn't approve. And I said, Wendy, he seems like a really good guy. At that point, his father was very old and he was living there. And I remember Wendy was, upset for three reasons she said yes Leon helps his dad a lot and I'm very proud of him he 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 really takes care of his dad and he won't quit drinking he won't quit smoking weed and I'm really upset about it I don't want that around Cynthia and now I want to get my son back I don't want him to be around the smoking and Mm -hmm. drinking and things but she had a lot of trouble articulating that because she had a very very short-term memory I was like well Wendy did you eat and I had just given her a sandwich 5 minutes before that she finished it no I'm really hungry can you give me some food so in between her her memory issues she did mention that there was also something going on with Leon's sister and Leon was helping her finish sentences because she said yeah Lisa Le- Lisa came and 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 microwave and angry and that was exactly how she would talk it was very disjointed and sentences weren't fully formed but you knew what she was saying she was saying lisa microwave i'm angry and i was like what's going what is she trying to say and leon goes yeah you know lisa and her husband came to our house last weekend and they broke in while we were gone and they stole our microwave and they sold it for drugs they stole two of my guns and sold it for drugs. They oh, wow. stole some money out of daddy's box and, and they used it for drugs. Wow. So my sister was already upset with Lisa. Very, very tumultuous re- relationship with Lisa Renee. Yeah. I yeah. avoid speaking ill of her because I know she's dead, but I'm telling you the facts. I've got wow. it written in, in ink where my sister wrote, Yeah, they came, they stole our right. stuff again. They stole our new microwave. This is the third microwave we've had to buy. They stole our TV, and they stole some stuff from Grandpa, which is what she called Leon's dad. Why she called him Grandpa, I have no clue. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> she was very upset and agitated in that letter that I got from her early 1990. Now, what happened between 91 and 92, I knew that offhand – I would call and talk to her here and there. We didn't have internet. We didn't have free long distance. Right. For me to call her, it was 575 a minute wow. to talk to her from New York. So right. it was extremely prohibitive cost wise and it didn't happen often. Sure. But I would call her here and there and hey, how are you? I would talk five minutes and then call my mom and dad five minutes. That was it for three months. Yeah. So yep. I, I called her and I heard that there was this, um, Child custody case was going on because all of a sudden Beverly's saying, Jonathan is my child. I adopted him. And we're like, what the hell are you? What planet are you on? You can't adopt a child that wasn't up for adoption. Well, Jonathan apparently was caught in a tug of war because Chad not only had given a divorce to my sister, the same day he signed over his parental rights to Beverly. To and unbeknownst to my family, They went to a lawyer, hired a lawyer and went and said, "Okay, well, the mom's in a coma and my son is a drug addict. He can't take care of a child. So he wants to sign parental rights over to me and I'm willing to adopt him. Can I do that? Yes, you can. So therein lies the rub Mm. when my sister was like, I want to see my son. I think the first couple of times it wasn't an issue. But then they accused Leon of molesting Jonathan. Okay. And okay. I don't know where the hell that uh, accusation came from. Sure. That's where Ginger Leto comes in. A forensic psychologist came in and was court ordered to, you know, interview my nephew, talk to him, you know, see if this was true. Now, at that point, Ginger Leto said unequivocally, he has not any way, shape or form been molested. I presented him with ideas of, oh, what is this? What is that? Have you ever talked about this? Do you know what that? He had no clue. He didn't even know what she was asking him about. And then she was like, oh, have you ever done this? Have you ever seen this? Have you, you know, just indirect kind of questioning that as an adult, you would know what they're asking. And the little kid is like, can I have some Play-Doh, please? You know, it wasn't interesting. So then they had him physically examined, found zero Zero evidence of any kind of molestation having occurred. So that's why the court said, okay, so now you've accused Leon of doing something we've proven is not true. Visitations are going to resume. You can no longer hinder her from seeing her child. Well, that made her dig her heels in even deeper. Of course. And Beverly took off with Jonathan every single time it was my sister's time to visit. Oh, well, one time Debbie, which is Beverly's sister, when... Wendy and Leon went to go get Jonathan. Oh, well, he's not here. Beverly took him to six flags in Texas. You know, they're not even in Oklahoma. And then another time they went to pick up Jonathan and the house again. (laughs) What happened to me and my husband personally, the house had been deserted and this happened many times. Sure. And finally, one day they tried to call. It was again, their visitation court ordered again. Yes, you have to let them see. And, they they the phone number was disconnected so this went on for about a year that they were in full-on hiding couldn't be found finally law enforcement tracked them down brought them that's when the judge said i've had enough yeah you have to let them see the child and then my parents got involved and got a grandparental right visit you know case started yep yep so i can't tell you how long that dragged on again i wasn't personally living there but again um they wouldn't give any information to my family. They would go to get him. He's not there. They, they again, abandoned homes that we had addresses. Phone numbers were disconnected. So my dad said, I had enough of this. I'm going to go ask the police to tell me where they think they are. And they told my dad, we don't have to tell you jack shit because you're not law enforcement. And they were very rude to my father. And he goes, okay, you want to play that game? He went and got his PI license and came back and said, now, tell me what I asked you give me all the information about them within three days my dad found them called law enforcement stayed right where he was sitting told them i'm here i can see jonathan and i can see beverly come and get them and they did they came and picked them up and oh, then good. three days later my sister called the co- uh the court told them that this is what's happened my dad had to get a pi license for the law enforcement to give any information my mom and dad oh, wow are the ones who told the judge, look, we need an emergency hearing. She has summied us for two years yeah. to see Jonathan, yeah. and we aren't having it anymore. We want to see our grandson and his mother, due to no fault of her own, was in a coma when this woman was legally allowed to adopt him. And we're going to challenge that adoption because it was illegal. My daughter never signed over her parental right, rights. Right. And guess what? The judge fully agreed. They went in front of a judge and the judge said to my sister, what do you want to see happen? And she had already went through this with the lawyer. All I want your judge, your honor, all I want to see happen is I want my son back in my home. But I'm not trying to snatch him out of his environment, unknown, he doesn't know me anymore. So what I would like to see happen is I'll keep him for one day a week and, you know, from 24 hours a day. And then turn him over let him have five to six days to kind of, you know, assimilate into me. Maybe the next week I'll take two days up, up until and he's fully finally I mean, with me 24. That's really
0: great for Wendy because she understood right. that it was not right. good to just rip him out of his <laughs> environment right. and right. force him into right. another one.
1: Yeah. Right. And that's why the Wonderful. judge, I think he agreed with her. Yeah. He said that that's a very mature approach. I right. can see that you don't care about you. You want to do what's best for right. Jonathan. And, she, and she's not and looking I for retaliation
0: against the right. person who has right. held and her she, child from her for two years.
1: Right. A- absolutely. It wasn't vindictive. It mm-hmm. wasn't like I want my son and I want him now and right. I don't ever want to see him ever again. It was like I want to do it slow. I want Jonathan to be comfortable. I want to, do, to know my son. I, I had him two weeks later. I'm in a coma. I've never spent time with him alone. Right, so, right I want to do this slowly I'm not trying to keep him you know away from them but he's my child I never signed over parental rights I shouldn't have to seek parental visitation he's my son right I want my son back but I want to do it slowly to where I don't traumatize him right and in she any can way acclimate or as well wrong. right and mm-hmm. I can get used to being around him and what my needs are I'm trying to still learn how to walk and talk I right. need to do it slowly. Right. The judge agreed. Everything was set on course. Three days after that court hearing, she was supposed to get him the very first time starting this new routine with Jonathan that Saturday. uh, Chad called and said, hey, would you like to see Jonathan today? And Wendy's like, yeah, right. You know, I can't drive. Leon's at work. I can't come there. Well, don't worry. My mom said she'll come and pick you up and then she'll bring you back home and you can have an extra visit today if you agree. Now, oh. whenever Cynthia heard, oh, I get to go see my baby brother. Right. Lisa Renee somehow was corralled into the whole situation by Leon saying they they even admitted to bringing a, a gun to court. I don't trust Beverly. She's a bad person. I don't feel comfortable with you going by yourself. And I have to work today. So I can't take you. It's if uh, you know, I can't go with you. If you want to go, you have to take Lisa with you. I would feel more comfortable with you. And here, okay, Lisa so Le- Renee was.
0: Leon uh-huh. is advising her. If you're going to go with Beverly, then someone needs to go with you and Cynthia. Right. And so this right. is this is where Lisa comes in. She's going to that's essentially how Lisa like Renee. She, yeah, yes, that's she's going to chaperone essentially. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Okay. Now, Lisa Renee was a super super skinny maybe a hundred hundred and ten pounds, super skinny, and she was a drug addict on methamphetamine. So that ought to tell you, you know, her mental condition wasn't great. Okay. She wasn't mature. She wasn't responsible. She was only twenty two. She already had three oh, wow. or four kids. And she was living um a life of drug fueled frenzy. Okay. It was a very chaotic lifestyle that she and her husband were living. Wendy was pissed off. She didn't like Lisa because Lisa wouldn't quit stealing their things for drugs. And she was like begrudgingly agreed, okay, Lisa can go. Mm-hmm. And the next thing that happens is that Beverly and Ida, Ida's Beverly's mother, Chad's grandmother. Okay. Jonathan's great-grandmother. Right, so Jonathan's with grandma and great-grandma. Okay, all right. right. So they both show up and... They got really, really pissed off that Wendy and Lisa and Cynthia were waiting to get in the car. And Leon was outside as well. And she goes, well, I only agreed that Wendy, we're only taking Wendy to see Jonathan. And Leon supposedly said, Cynthia wants to go see her baby brother. And I don't want Wendy to be alone because of her health condition. She struggles to walk. She needs help to walk and talk and eat. I want Lisa to go. Okay. So she was like, okay, well, goddamn it, they can go. And was like very rude. All right. It and, was obvious
0: she really didn't want them to go.
1: Right. She okay. only wanted Wendy. So they all load up in the car. Now here's where a lot of misinformation I've seen regarding this, and I'm telling you factual facts that the OSBI personally told me, my mom, and my father when he was still alive. Okay. The OSBI says it is corroborated with what your mom's telling us. Not Leon. Leon was never called by Wendy. Wendy only called my mother twice that day, not Leon. If you read, oh yeah, Wendy called Leon. I have read that
0: Wendy called Leon. Yep.
1: Right. It's, it's not true okay Wendy called my mother to let her know that she had arrived safely she said that you know we're gonna we're talking to Chad and you know we were we you know everything is going great so when they left I don't know what time it was I think it was four or five in the afternoon according to court records and all that the timings are blurred for me I just know that the OSBI confirmed. Wendy stopped at a convenience store and used the payphone outside of the store and called my mom again. Mm -hmm. She said word for word. I've heard it so many times in my head. I can reverberate this conversation in my sleep probably. So (laughs) my mom said, I'll never forget. I heard a lot of cars driving by when I answered the phone and I was like, hello. And she could hardly hear Wendy. And Wendy was like, yeah, mama, we're on our way home. Cynthia was wanting some snacks. So we stopped and Beverly, got her a bag of chips and some soda. And then she was starting to talk, but then Beverly was in the background. And you know, when you're on the phone and someone's like, you can hear them talking, but you have no clue what they said. Yes. And Wendy was like, mom, I've got to go. Beverly's bitching at us to get off the phone and get in the car. She's in a hurry and she doesn't want to waste any more time. So we'll be home within 45 minutes or whatever. I love you. We'll see you soon. Okay. That was the last conversation that they had. Oh. Now, she had already, and then she, I think in the first phone call, she mentioned, yeah, Beverly was being super rude and aggressive. The whole right there, she was screaming at me. And my mom said, well, what was she saying? She goes, Mama, I can't remember. I just, I, I, I'm only telling you that she was mean. And Cynthia was crying. Lisa was telling Beverly to shut the fuck up. She was getting really mean with Cynthia. She was telling Cynthia to sit down and not snivel like a baby and just treating everybody in the car like I'm the boss and you're going to do what the hell. I said, don't touch my window. Put your foot down. Don't move. You know, just like being very, very controlling. Yeah. And I guess they didn't want fingerprints in the car because at that point, somehow the car got changed where Ida was driving another car and oh. had Jonathan in the car with her and Wendy and Cynthia and Lisa were in another car it, i i mean it's still all up in the air because when Wendy would be on the phone and Leon wasn't around you might get half of the sentence and go what the hell does that even mean mm-hmm. i mean it was <laughs> like car Beverly Ida another car and it didn't make any sense to my mom until later the osbi gave us clarity that beverly and ida said that yes they went in the car to get wendy and cynthia and then they went to a parking lot where ida had her vehicle because we know now they had already planned to kill wendy ditch that vehicle with wendy in it somewhere and then ride home together in another vehicle or they were going to drop off wendy in another location and then just so that they would hit their timeline that my mom and and Leon knew that Wendy was Ida and Beverly, Ida could go ahead and and go get her vehicle and then meet Beverly, let them do whatever they were going to do, and then drive Beverly in the other vehicle until the other car could get cleaned up. I don't know what this thing was, but the OSBI said yes. They went to a parking lot where Ida's car was parked. Jonathan was in the vehicle, and somehow— Ida was driving a vehicle with Jonathan in it. Now, we still don't know how they ended up in Jennings, Oklahoma, because Beverly lived in Oklahoma City. Jonathan and Chad lived in Oklahoma City. We don't know how come they had to go visit Jonathan out in the middle of Jennings, Oklahoma, anyway, when they all lived in Oklahoma City. So we were under the—yeah, we just didn't understand from the get-go how did they go—why did they go out to some middle of nowhere— when they all lived in Oklahoma City, right? So we were—we can't speak to that. We only know that there were suddenly two vehicles involved, and Wendy and Cynthia were told not to touch anything, don't move. You just sit there and obey us. And I guess Lisa was trying to help my mom understand what we, what Wendy was saying, but Lisa was very highly agitated on the call. Yeah, Beverly wouldn't quit cussing at us. She was telling us not to touch anything. She got really mad at Cynthia for turning around and looking out the windows. She would tell her, quit touching shit. Don't move. And I, again, this is all from the OSBI. What they found during their interview with my mom and dad, what they talked to Beverly, Beverly corroborated it, but made it Wendy was being aggressive. And I told them in my interview yesterday on tape Beverly and Ida and Chad All these years, because of the Unsolved Mysteries segment, which we now know is a complete fabrication, they discredited my sister because anybody watching that segment where Ida's going, yeah, they were gripping in and bitching and this and we dropped them off, that conversation never even occurred because you never drove my sister anywhere. You killed her at the location that you took her to. And you killed them. You never took them anywhere else. They weren't griping and a bitching. But anybody would think, not knowing my sister, that that was plausible. They don't know my sister. They don't know how level-headed and calm she is. They don't realize she's lost her memory and can't remember five minutes ago. So I knew from right then and there, I turned around and I told my mom, that is bullshit. Wendy would have never done that. She would have never acted that way. She was not aggressive at all. She was a little rude to me one time when she was telling, oh, that lipstick color is horrible or why are you wearing such a weird color? That was the one and only time my sister said anything to me ever that was even slightly, you know, like, wow, okay, that came out of Mm film. So right, just for, was...
0: for reference for the audience, there was in the interim after Wendy and Lisa and Cynthia go missing, there was an Unsolved Mysteries episode done where um, Beverly was interviewed and they were saying that she no, was the No, they didn't one.
1: interview Beverly. Oh, they, they didn't. They never okay. interviewed Beverly. Okay. The interim is that on May 29th, 1992, My sister was picked up by Beverly and Ida in a vehicle and driven away from the home with Lisa, Cynthia, and Wendy. They were the only people in the car, all five of those people. The OSBI later told us that Ida and Beverly themselves told them, yeah, well, we had already parked one of our cars there. We were trying to save gas, but then when we realized that we're going to have to go all the way there— Ida didn't want to leave her car so we just stopped at the parking lot and Ida drove behind us I I don't know if yeah I don't know how come they had another car unless they were only expecting Wendy they were going to kill her in the car and then drop the car off to be deep cleaned with all of their little convict buddies that are all involved in covering up murders and then drive Ida's car And Beverly and another, you know, like leave one car there after they've killed Wendy in the vehicle for any kind of traces of the crime and then drive the second vehicle and go ahead and go home. Mm -hmm. We just think that that interrupted their plan with Cynthia and Lisa Renee tagging along. So they had to go ahead and drive all the way out to Jennings to their property that they owned at that time and killed them and threw them in that well and then drove back and said that, oh, yeah. Um, We stopped and ate dinner. We met up with Jonathan and Chad and had dinner at a steakhouse, and then that was it. We dropped them off at the Walmart because Wendy was griping and bitching at us and giving us a, you know, we got mad and just dropped them off at a local Walmart, which, if you've seen the Unsolved Mysteries episode, you hear Jackie Johnson saying, we know that it is impossible because the superhighway had just been opened and the road they're claiming that they drove on was already close to the public, nobody could drive on that road. So we already knew that, you know, what mm-hmm. some of the things she was saying just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So Wendy didn't contact my mom again. Mm-hmm. And at around nine or 10, she got really upset because she called Leon, wanted to make sure Wendy made it home. Cynthia, is, you know, how are they doing? That's when Leon said, Oh, I thought that they were with you. I didn't know where they were. I thought that they were still on the way home. That's when we met my parents, got in their vehicle. And drove to the Edmond Police Station and told them, hey, my daughter has been going through a custody battle with these people. Mm -hmm. Here's all the court records. Here's all the information. Mm -hmm. They offered to come and get Wendy today, and now they're missing. And Wendy has to have this medication. The doctor's been trying to wean her off of it. And because she started going back into coma-like symptoms, They said, nope, go right back on it at the same dosage or else you'll go back into a coma. So within five hours, if my daughter doesn't have this medication, she's going to go back into a coma and possibly die. So the police immediately got Beverly and and Ida, brought them in for questioning. And it is my parents demanded. We want to see her interview. We want to hear what she's saying. So they let them sit behind that mirror and watch the interview, and they were very accommodating to my parents simply because of all the court battles. My sure. parents bring in two cardboard boxes full of paper saying, mm-hmm. we are in a legal battle for my daughter to just get her son back, and now they right. offered to let her see, take, and, and now she's claiming they dropped him at a Walmart off of the street that isn't even publicly accessible anymore we know that she is lying we want to hear what she's got to say right, right. so they got to so watch, they, the interview. They let her watch
0: the interview okay
1: right they but my mom and dad got to see the police interviewing Be- debbie uh, i mean uh, beverly and ida and everything that they said my dad was sitting there with a the notepad going that's a lie that didn't happen this is a lie that's not true my daughter wouldn't have done that my daughter doesn't cuss at people you know blah 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 mm-hmm. so regardless of that I do know that the next step was a week, uh, not even a week out, they reached out, the police themselves reached out to Unsolved Mysteries and because it has to be initiated by law enforcement that this is a life or death situation. Can you please get the story out? So Unsolved Mysteries did a segment that aired when my sister was already missing for like five days. Now, in the interim, I'm in New York. Yeah. I don't have a flipping idea on the planet that my sister is missing. Okay. I didn't find out until the third or fourth day. Okay. My mom called me crying so hard, she couldn't even hardly speak. Of course. My dad finally took the phone and he was telling me, Yeah, baby, um, we've got some bad news. And I'm thinking when my mom is crying so hard, something had happened to my dad. And I was like, okay, if it wasn't daddy, was it my little brother? Well, okay, my last and final thing was Cynthia. It's Cynthia, okay. Right. Never crossed my mind that it was going to be Wendy was missing. And when he told me, I was like, what do you mean they're missing? They Aren't right. they at home? What are right. you talking it's about? Quite a shock. And that's when, right. So that's when he told me, you know, Jonathan and the, Wendy was offered an extra visit with Jonathan Mm -hmm. and then they were going to turn Jonathan over to her on Saturday, let her have a normal visit. Wendy and Cynthia and Lisa are now missing. Nobody knows where they are. And Beverly is lying that she dropped them off at a Walmart. And that, you know, unfortunately that Walmart doesn't have cameras. And then he gave me a litany about how they were doing aerial searches and helicopters and the community was looking for her. And I said, my only question is, why am I just now hearing about it three or four days later? Right. I mean, am I am I not important to you? To she, my mom, literally said, I haven't eaten, I haven't slept in three and a half days. I have just been up. I yeah, I can't even I can't think imagine. Straight. It's right. It's so it was, so hard. So right. So two and a half weeks into my sister being missing, all of the media attention, they hounded my parents at their front door for days on and oh do you have any leads you know they're right. trying to keep the story relevant but harassing us where we sleep and having big floodlights set up and and harassing my family like that was such a turnoff and of my course. mom ended up having a nervous breakdown and got put in St. Anthony's Hospital oh. for months they oh. were giving her I'm so sorry treatment. To hear treatment yeah oh. it, it was really bad yeah but long story short they did the unsolved mysteries, got no movement out of that, and one day turns into a month, and then the first month turns into three months, and then it turns into six months, and you're, you're just like, where are they? Do we have any hope? Well, then we found out Jackie Johnson, the original OSBI agent assigned to the case, had to take mandatory retirement. I've never heard about mandatory retirement for somebody who wasn't even in their 50s, I don't know what the hell that is. I got told that if you're an OSBI agent after so many years in that role, you have to retire. Okay. And then if you want to do it again, you have to reapply or something. I don't know. And I was like, what do you mean Jackie Johnson has her? She's not even a, maybe 50 at the most. She's not 65. Well, the person who came in as the new case was a guy named Joe Hugh. My parents, finally successfully gotten a grand mal jury to find Beverly either innocent of going out and, and kidnapping and, and doing something nefarious with my family members or to get all suspicion taken off of her, whether they were going to indict her or not. Uh-huh. And my parents literally had a grand mal jury set up to go within a week or two when Jackie Johnson retired and the case was assigned to Mr. Josie Hugh. Now, it's very important to keep that name in mind right. because he immediately told my parents, I reached out and put the court on hold because I need to get up to speed on the case. My parents were like, okay, fine, thinking it was going to be a few days and maybe a, and within the next month or two, they were going to reassign the court docket and go to the jury. He kept on delaying and delaying and delaying and delaying it and delaying it. And finally, we're out almost two years and my mom was like, Every single time I call him, he's very abrupt and rude. And I said, okay, let me call him. So I called and I said, I would like to speak to Joe LeHue. Well, sorry, he's a field agent. He doesn't have an office. I can give you his cell phone number and that's it. And I kept leaving voicemails. This went on for three months mm-hmm. that I kept calling him and he would never answer. So what did I do? I called the local regional OSBI agent office. And I said, I would like to talk to Jolie, Hughes' supervisor. This lady gets on the phone and goes, "Okay, so why are you calling me? What do you need? And I said, first and foremost, ma'am, I would (laughs) like to know we're three and a half, four years out on my sister's case. We had the grand jury was denied to us because the time ran out. Joe LeHue just dragged his ass and never reinstated that court date for my family, and now we're just trying to get information. Nobody's updating us. Nobody's talking to us. We don't know what's going. Well, ma'am, first of all, I will tell Joe LeHue to stop everything he's doing to give you a call. And number two, you have to realize this is a cold case. We don't have time to go back trying on a cold case. And I said for a six-year-old child. And two twenty-two and 23-year-old women don't mean anything to you that they are missing and have been for a couple of years now. And I haven't called you a single time. Every time my mom calls, Jola doesn't return our calls. And she was like, well, you have to realize he's doing the best he can. And I said, okay, when am I going to get a call from him? She said, I'm going to call him right now and ask him to drop everything. To call you, and she said it exactly in that tone of voice to me. I swear. Mm -hmm, Then mm -hmm. I get a call literally 30 minutes later, and it you this was like a week before Christmas of 1994 because I was pregnant and I was due that month, so it was sometime in November, and I was like heavily nine months pregnant. I'm already in a mood. I'm tired, I'm bitchy, I'm yeah. just like ready to have this baby. And then to hear them giving us an attitude versus, I'm sorry, we don't have any leads. As soon as we hear something, we'll contact right. you. We promise. I got this. Mr. LeHue, how can I help you? And I said, Well, my name is Aisha. I'm Wendy's sister. Ma'am, I know who you are. I pulled over in a ditch. It is raining outside. And I got told by my supervisor, I had to call you. And I said, first of all, you can drop your attitude. I have a legal right to call you and ask you what's going on. You canceled our grand mal jury. You didn't ever reinstate it. You didn't care about us. And then we are waiting to get some type of update, even if it's once every month or once every three months, it's literally been two years Yeah. and yeah. you're not calling us. You're not right. talking to us you're not it's like we don't even exist right and he goes well I'm busy and he hung up on me Oh wow. I called his supervisor back and I told her he answered or when I answered the phone he goes Joel do you what do you want and I told her how he talked to me what and She goes well you know what he's a busy man and he's doing the best he can and she hung up on me again so it was about five thirty that night and I called my mom and told her I was like, I am literally beside myself about how they talk to us. And she goes, well, I'm going to call him in the morning from work. 1030 in the morning, my mom calls me and goes, well, guess what happened? And I said, what? She goes, well, I called and I talked to his supervisor and I was telling her, I'm very upset. Joe Hugh is talking bad to me. Now he's talking bad to my daughter. We just want to know what's going on in the case. You know what she said? Uh, I said, well, what did she say, mom? She goes, well, she said, well, I'm looking at the caller ID. It looks like you're calling from work. Are you? Are you at the college or university? And my mom said, yes. She goes, okay, well, then go ahead and do your job and let let us do ours. And oh. she hung up on my mom. Wow. I swear, you can't make this up. These are literally the attitude that we got. Well, what did I do? It was early 94. We already had the internet, the World Wide Web. I worked at Microsoft at that time. So I knew how to use this internet i i was fully aware so what did i do i start doing searches on joe lahue you know what i found out joe lahue used to be the under sheriff deputy in shamrock which now shamrock police department is defunct it got closed down for heavy heavy corruption oh. and is no longer even in existence so oh he gosh. used to be yeah, he used to be the under deputy sheriff in Shamrock, Oklahoma, and he also worked at DPU and in Bristol. Okay. Then I did some further digging and found out that he had been having an affair with Beverly and Ida at separate times while oh, he was married, had no. an open affair with both of them. I immediately. how did you find out that information? Because family. All of their, her family. I was involved with a few of her family members mm-hmm. at that point. Beverly and family members? Be- Beverly's niece. Okay. Kristen lived in Germany when she was a little kid and all of the kidnapping stuff came down. But Kristen reached out to me in 1996 and was telling me, hey, we've got all of this stuff going on in our family, and we know that Beverly's guilty as hell. It's an open secret. Jonathan will tell Beverly, Mama Beverly, if you don't buy me that Game Boy, I'm going to call the police and tell on you. Oh, my. I'm going to tell them what you did. Jonathan's blackmailing them? (laughs) Right. Absolutely. He completely blackmailed her. She said it's an open secret. I would see Jonathan go, okay, if you don't obey me, I'm just going to have to call the police, and I'll tell them everything. And Beverly, oh, no, 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 Jonathan, it's okay, honey. I'll give you that. He completely blackmailed her for years. And Christian was telling me all of this, and Christian was the one who told me, Stacey Howard, another sheriff whose gun was used to kill Debbie's husband, and Debbie is Beverly's sister, Ida's daughter. They used his gun to kill Debbie Ralston's husband. In their driveway, and then oh, Debbie I did and read Ida. About this. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Beverly and Debbie were arrested and charged with murder. And then Stacy Howard's gun went missing. So, oh no, no gun. so oh, charges are dropped. Murder oh, wow. charges got dropped. If wow. that's not police corruption at its finest, I don't know what the hell is. If I committed murder and you've got a dead body and you found a gun with my fingerprints on it and you arrest me, the gun goes missing. My charges aren't going to get dropped,
2: right? but they right. dropped
1: it on both of them. Okay. And then two, I don't know if it was two days or a few weeks later, stacy Howard was found dead in his vehicle, his police vehicle with the same gun that had went missing and it was staged. To look like a suicide. Oh crap! Yeah, and this is a person that Ida and Debbie and Beverly, all three, had had an affair with him, and then all of a sudden oh. we get Jolie Hugh, who's openly everybody in the family knows that they had an affair with him. So he suddenly Ida made, and Beverly just liked to share partners. I I guess, and they were running a a prostitution house called the Sugar Shack. All oh, of the law enforcement were patrons of that. So they never got in trouble at all now wow. here's another rub they were accused at one point of slavery or um what do they call child trafficking oh, God. because they were bringing girls and little girls from mexico through the texas border to oklahoma to use in that place called sugar shack but again I digress what was, and what I'm was sugar a- shack
0: supposed to be a candy a store,
1: bro- a brothel, a brothel. Well, I mean, those aren't legal. What was it What was its? I cover? know that's why it got. Uh, I don't know. Oh. I I only got told this by the OSBI that okay. he was running a place called the Sugar probably, Shack. Probably a
0: massage therapist.
1: Maybe. <laughs> maybe. But everybody knew it was a prostitute and that you could go there and all the police Uh, I shouldn't have said
0: that about all massage therapists. Some some of them really are legitimate stores.
1: Yeah. It sounds like it could be a candy store though. (laughs) Right. I have no idea. I just know that the OSBI said that there were leanings towards the fact that these child sex trafficking was occurring okay. and then once that place got closed down it kind of you know went on to the ether nobody okay. mentioned it again but in the interim I reached out to the local OSBI here I mean the the Texas State Bureau of Investigation and I told them look if you don't call this conflict of interest then I don't know how to in the hell to make my brain understand what conflict of interest is this gentleman who is an osbi agent used to have an affair with beverly ida and i don't know if it was with um debbie or not but i know for sure ida and debbie i mean uh, ida and beverly both had an affair with him why is he in charge of a murder case looking for my three missing family members when those both are the key suspects. Right. Why is he in charge of this case? And you know what they told me? No. That's not a conflict of interest. He's an OSBI agent. Just because he had an affair with them, that doesn't mean he's not gonna do a good job. Click. Um oh I'm not kidding. You cannot make this shit up. If if somebody tells me that I had an affair with some guy and then I something happens to that guy and his or a family member of that person. I don't think I would ever be assigned a case that that family member was involved with because yeah. even at my current job, where I'm in the medical field, I'm a phlebotomist. If I know somebody and they come in to get a blood draw, right. I am legally forced to disclose that this is my family member. And to ask another phlebotomist to draw their blood. Right. I, if I can't even take their blood, then why would I legally right. be allowed to be over a missing person's case? Right. If no, I had an affair with the <laughs> with the person who's accused of murdering them, yeah. I would be laughed out of a police station for trying to get on that case. This guy somehow um, achieved it, and he was the one who stimmied us every step of the way for twenty years. Now, I tried two other times to reach out and leave messages for him. He never returned them. And then, like I was saying, every anniversary, three months in advance, I would reach out to six counties out of Oklahoma City in all directions. I went to Mustang, Oklahoma, Denning, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Briscoe, Davenport. I would call all these newspapers, the Daily Oklahoma, the Edmonds. Yeah. All of these, Edmund's son, all of them, I would reach out and ask them, the anniversary is coming up on May 29th. Can you please just put a small blurb, even if it's on the last page of the newspaper? I don't care. Just can you put something in there about Wendy and Cynthia, please? You know, I would really appreciate it. And all of them were like, sure, you know, no problem. Because mm-hmm. at this Again, point in time, they're pres-
0: still missing,
1: right? Yeah, there we're is 20 no, yeah. years out. Yes. We're 20 yeah. years out. And they're out. just still missing We've people. we Nothing. When we would call the OSBI, they would be rude, hang up on us, tell us this is a cold case. We don't have any further information. So every single anniversary, like on the 15th anniversary, the um, what company? I think it was Channel 6 or Channel 9 or some news station in Oklahoma City came to my home in Texas, interviewed me for the anniversary, for the 15th anniversary. And then on the 20th anniversary, I was trying to drum up more interest and everybody was like, yeah, we'll go ahead and do a blurb. Well, that's when I called the OSBI and they were very skittish. That's the only word I can say. I asked, look, it's the 20th anniversary and I haven't heard damn word from anybody at this OSBI agency in seven years. I'm wondering how
0: things take a different turn.
1: Right, well, at seven years, I should have gotten a phone call from you guys. I haven't heard from Joe. I don't know what the problem is at your agency. I know that there's accountability up to a degree that you guys are super busy. But I, as a family member, I am the spokesperson now for my sister and niece. My mother had a nervous breakdown. She can't do it. I'm the one taking the reins here. And I would like some information. Well, Joe isn't on the—he's uh, no longer the agent. And I said, "Well, who's the agent?" Oh, his name is Kevin Garrett. Here's his phone number. So I said, "Okay, fine. I'll call him and I'll talk to him." During that time frame, I reached out to Kristen. Hey, Kristen, just wanted to let you know that I'm trying to drum up some information for, you know, giving a newspaper article or news media. And Kristen blurb is on the news. journalist. No. no, Kirsten oh. is Beverly's niece. Oh, okay. Sorry. There's a lot of names. No. Yeah, I know. That, uh, sorry. So I reached out to her via email. Mm-hmm. Kirsten, I'm trying to reach out to all these news outlets. Can you do me a solid? And can you call the local news media in your area? I really want them to have enough time to kind of work it in there before May 29th. That it's like, oh, today's the anniversary and we didn't even know about it and you, we can't run it today. It's too late. Mm-hmm. So I gave three to four months in advance. It had to have been April, March or April that I started making all these phone calls so that they would have time before yeah. May 29th. Right. right. So I reached out to Cursing goes, Aisha, holy shit, can I call you? And I was like, uh, duh, of course. So two seconds later, my phone rings and she was out of breath. And I was like, whoa, did I catch you in a bad time or, you know, maybe exercising? And she goes, no, you won't believe this. Literally, I was thinking about you. um, I was going to call you 10 minutes ago, but I'm on the phone with my cousin trying to get all the information. And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, you won't believe this. And I was like, I'm waiting. What? Tell me. Quit dragging it. She goes, you won't believe it. But Grover is sitting in the police station right now. Every day for the last two days, they've taken him and questioned him. And I said, yeah, because I called the local news stations and I told them, can you call the police? They won't tell us anything. Can you find out if there's any update? This is literally the 21st anniversary now, not even 20th. This is the 21st anniversary coming up and I can't get them to talk to me. So the news media must have called the police and asked, okay, it's been 20 years now it's starting the 21st anniversary is coming up in a few months what's going on does that well i don't know if that prompted them or if grover himself approached the police but i know that they were waiting for the statute of limitations for kidnapping was 20 years and that's when grover either was approached by the police who is grover grover is beverly's brother okay I thought you were aware of these basic well, names, but my from sorry. Well, but my <laughs>
0: listeners were recording this, and my listeners oh, are okay, not aware.
1: Sure. Yep, yep. Right. No, no, no problem. So Grover is Beverly's brother. Sorry, I'm nope, trying that's to okay. brief. Properly. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so Beverly Grover either was approached by the police Mm -hmm. because I kept on prompting, asking everybody and their grandma, can you please call the police and find out what's going on? They won't talk to us. The OSBI won't talk to us. So I know for two months before that, they had been actively calling. Brandy Ball, the reporter from Tulsa, reached out to me personally and said, I called the OSBI seven times. And asked him, Are you interviewing Grover? Are you interviewing Debbie, Beverly, Ida? I mean, Ida had already died at that time. Sorry. Okay. But she right. Said that I makes was sense. asking, Yeah, well, she had done this every year. I keep calling and I call like multiple times just to, you know, see if they'll talk to me. But she said, They basically told me we're at a standstill. There's no leads. Sorry.
2: Yeah.
1: Kristen was super excited by telling me, Yes my my uh uncle grover has been going to the police station today is the second or third day and last night when he came back he was telling us over the dinner that he was telling them everything as much as he could what all he knew to be true and later i found out from the osbi that grover had agreed to wear a wire and he was gonna go and talk to beverly which he ended up screwing around and making it known that he was wearing a wire all three chances they gave him he kept on interfering with it like on one of the recording transcripts i heard beverly go oh yeah um your tail is showing i see some cord hanging out of your shirt is that a wire ha 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 and not even a real laugh it was like you know like i know that you're wearing a wire then another time he was actually messing around and opening the buttons. You could hear him opening and scratching, like he was scratching his chest. And you hear, you know, like that, like it yeah. sounds like somebody's going, was he oh, like purposely trying to out himself to Beverly? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then he kept on saying, Oh, I'm not involved, right? I didn't have anything to do with it. Oh, right? geez. And then he said something in the way that, yeah, it sure would be bad if we were wearing a wire, wouldn't it? <laughs> And the mm-hmm. way he laughed is like, yeah, I'm wearing a wire. So all three chances that the OSBI agents gave him to go in and have a sincere conversation with her to get her to admit she he interfered with all three of them. And it says on that transcript, Grover purposely was making it known that he was wearing a wire and he tampered with that. So nothing is usable because he, mm-hmm. he you know, she knows she was, he was wearing a wire. Right. right. So, Moving past all of that, here we are, 21 years out, and Kirsten is telling me that he's being questioned. So I immediately get back on the phone to the OSBI agent, and I said, I would love to talk to Kevin Garrett. I know he's been assigned my sister's case. I need to talk to him 15 minutes ago. If he doesn't call me in the next hour, I'm going to get in my vehicle, and I'm driving to the OSBI headquarters. In Edmond, Oklahoma, I'm going to march my happy ass in there, and if I don't see him, I'm calling the police to come to the OSBI headquarters because I'm going to do some shit that's probably going to land me in jail. I have a full right to get information, and it sounds like there's some movement on this. Why in the fuck haven't I been called? And I just started screaming and cussing at them, and he goes, okay, look, we're hang up. We're going to have Kevin call you right now. He didn't call immediately it was two hours later and i was just sitting there holding my phone seething i was angry that yeah it seems like something's been going on for two days and they didn't even call us and tell us anything i didn't even know a new agent was finally on the case so kevin called i gotta give him credit he was very nice he was very calm very sweet he talked to me calmed me down and he said yes we have been talking to grover I literally just got your sister's case a couple of years ago. Nothing was moving on it. And I said, my question to you, Kevin, is every single time I can think that I've reached out to you guys. Beverly and Ida were both in jail for arson. And I called and asked Joe every single day. Grover is the one you need to talk to because Grover is the person who i think was involved i think that he's the one who helped hide the bodies i think he helped kill them i think that y'all should go after him he might be the weakest link since beverly and ida are in prison he might break and tell the truth why don't you go and get him and chad and talk to them get debbie the sister interview them and i got told ma'am are you a sort of are you a police officer are you in law enforcement who are you to tell us what to do and i'm like Well, y'all haven't achieved anything for all these years. Why can't I give you a suggestion? You know, come on, go and get him and talk to him. Nope, we're not doing that. So here we are. The 21st anniversary is about to roll around. They're interviewing him. He told me he's actually given us a place to go dig. And I said, why wasn't my family notified Well, we were just going to go get the do is the dig. And if we found something, then we would have notified Mm -hmm. you. And I said, that's not the way this shit's supposed to work. If you have a lead, no matter how insignificant it is, why was the family not notified? Even if it turned out to be false, you didn't find anything, but you're supposed to give us hope. You're supposed to keep us from feeling that there's no hope and feeling dejected and, and hopeless. Well, that's not how we work. And I said, well, that's how you're going to work now. I want to come to the dig. No, sorry, you can't come. And I said, I would like to come to the dig. And if you won't allow me to come to the dig, what can I do? Well, you can come to Jennings police station and we're going to go out there on this day. So you can come and you can be present at the police station. And if we find something, we're going to come and tell you. Mm -hmm. Great. Next day. I was here in Texas. I drove all the way to Jennings, Oklahoma, which, by the way, from my home in Dallas-Fort Worth to even go to Oklahoma City is a three-hour drive and go to Tulsa's an additional four. So okay. that's a, basically an eight-hour drive. I got in my car. I went to Oklahoma. I grabbed my mom, told her what was going on. Of course, the minute I got on the phone to Kevin and found out that we could go. Told my mom and little brother, look, you guys, we're going to have to go because I'm going. If y'all want to go, you're more than welcome, but you have to bring your own car. I'm not going to stop and do a pit stop. I'm going yeah. a total different yeah. highway. So they agreed. They showed up. We went. We sat in the Jennings police station for hours. I asked for coffee five times and got told, yeah, we'll bring you some coffee. And we sat there and sat there and sat there. Now you have to realize in the middle of nowhere, there's no Starbucks around the corner. Right. There's no McDonald's right. nearby. Yeah. And I asked them so many times for coffee, and they acted like we were just a big imposition on them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we've been sitting out here in the lobby for six hours. Can we have a cup of coffee? Finally, they were, like, shrugging their shoulders and rolling their eyes that they had to bring up a stupid-ass cup of coffee. Yeah, no food, no water, no water, not nothing. What happened? We were sitting and watching the TV, and all of a sudden, it said breaking news, and I, my mom was on my left, and my little brother was on my right, and I grabbed their hands, and we're sitting there just staring at the TV, and all of a sudden, they show people running around, and they've got numbers on their chest, and I had been told that in the digs, when they go out, they put string, and they number each little square, and then one personal dig, and et cetera. So okay. I'm thinking, did something happen at the dig site? Did something, it looks like people got blown up. Their clothes are black. And then it said, it's called Boston Marathon oh, bomb. bomb, And I was like, mm-hmm. what? I was so confused. I was like, I right. okay. my brain just couldn't comprehend because I saw breaking news. I was like, okay, they found them. You know, uh, this is over now. We know what, they, they are dead for sure. We're not just assuming anymore. Mm-hmm. So- we're sitting there, we waited, and then they did a couple of aerial commercials, like, you know, showing, okay, there's a dig going out, the OSB at this property, and they showed it from the above, and then all of a sudden they started putting up a blue tent or some kind of blue cover over the dig site. Mm-hmm. So I called Kevin, I said, look, it's starting to rain, I see that they're putting that little roller cover over it, he goes, yeah, they're just putting up because it's raining, but we haven't found anything and i said look i'm away from my home my children are there my husband has to work i don't want to make it to where he's struggling to get them all ready for school etc i'm gonna go ahead and head home and go back to uh, texas he goes wait don't go back because if we find them tomorrow we're gonna go and dig again tomorrow and if we find them we're gonna want to do a dna on you not your mom and i was like why they said because Sibling DNA results are a lot better than a paternity. And I said, okay, "Okay, which is a phlebotomist. Now I know that, you know, the buckle swabs, I perform them on others. So I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll hang out tonight. So we went back to Edmund where we were with a family member and a family friend. I'm sorry. And I was spending the night with him and his wife. They were colleagues of my father. He was also a physics professor that has been in my my life since i could remember i mean ever since i could walk this man has been in my life okay. so he's like a second father to me so we were spending the night with him and two o'clock in the morning my phone rings and it is nolan clay from the Oklahoman, and okay. he goes um is this aisha hashmi and i said yes and thinking of course media rep- reporters are going to want to ask you were present at the dig are you aware of it yeah. blah, blah. that's not what he said he goes Well, um, we just wanted to know if you had any comments for the story we're running tomorrow. And I was like, well, what is your story going to say? I can only say I came down and just hung out at the Jennings police station. They didn't find anything. So, you know, I'm going to hang out. And and he goes, no, we're running the story that the bodies were found today. And we just wanted to know if you had any comments. I said, but why would you lie? He goes, we're not lying. And I said, well, the OSBI would have told me if they found something. He goes, ma'am. We have a very credible source who was at the dig, and we've been in touch with this person for four days knowing that they were going to go out on that dig. They told the daycare worker when they picked up their child on the way home for the night that the three bodies were found and that we are going to go ahead. And I said, first of all, Mr. Clay, I've been waiting for 21 and a half years to find out where my missing relatives were. Do you not think that you're the biggest jackass on the planet that I found out from you and not the OSBI? Why would you call me and tell me that my family members were born? Should I have heard it from you? And he didn't say anything. And I said, you can write whatever the fuck you want. I don't ever want to hear from you again. You have no right to call me and tell me anything. You have no right to tell anybody anything until we, the family, tell everybody it is not your right to tell anybody anything. He yeah. goes, oh, we're going to tell this. We're writing the story. We're, we're putting right. it in the paper tomorrow. Anyway, bye. I immediately called Kevin. I said, I have a question for you. And he goes, what is it? I'm tired. I, I said, I don't care if you're tired or not. I don't care if you have to get up in 15 minutes. I want to know why you lied to my face, why you lied to my mother and my little brother's face and told us that this was not found. They didn't find anything. And he goes, well, what are you talking? We didn't find anybody. And I said, oh, so the lie is just going to continue, right? You're still not going to tell the truth? He goes, why are you accusing us that we're lying to you? I said, well, the Oklahoma is running a story tomorrow. They just called me and asked me for a comment, and they said that they have a credible source who picked up their child from a daycare and told the daycare employees who they are very familiar with that they found my my family and you are still sitting here lying to me that they weren't found. And you even asked me not to leave tomorrow because you know, in the morning you were going to tell me to come and you were going to do a buckle swap. So who, when are you going to stop lying? He goes, look, give me a minute. He hung up. He called me back 13 to 15 minutes later. And he goes, okay, I had to reach out to my supervisor because we weren't supposed to tell anybody anything and we were going to tell you and your mom tomorrow that, yes, we found your family. So someone but, ran their mouth and wasn't supposed right, to. Mm-hmm. Right. So he said we were going to tell you guys tomorrow. But what we wanted to do in the interim is we don't want Beverly to know that we found the bodies. We're going to keep it hush hush and try to go around and see what's going on and what people are all oh, damn. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't find the bodies. They must have looked in the wrong place. You know, that kind of offhanded remark is what they were trying to get on film or on tape of Beverly saying to Grover. But since this stupid guy went ahead and ran the story, the OSBI refused to confirm. Koch is the name of the uh, OSBI spokesperson at that time. I don't remember her first name, but it was K-O-C-H. She herself said, we are not going to publicly admit anything. And it is on record in the newspaper articles that the OSBI is not confirming or denying that any bodies were found. And they publicly didn't ad- admit that the bodies were found for like three months. And they asked us not to as well. I said, you got it. I, I, As long as I'm in the loop and I know it's not for public consumption, I won't say anything to even my husband. I don't need to tell anybody. I wanted to be kept in the loop all these years. And then I find out from a newspaper journalist that my family was finally found. How messed up is that? Right. How messed up is that? It was not his right to tell me it would have, it should have come from you guys. No matter what the minute you even suspected that you found a body and they were wearing the exact same clothing that they were described missing in. You knew that you found them. You could have called me. And my mom and my brother, we could have gone on a three-way call. We right. could have done a, you know, speaker phone in the police station, and you could have said, "Look, we are so sorry. We did find them. Yeah. But what we need to do is keep it on the down low. Nobody's going to say anything because now we have an ability to get tongues wagging. Well, they were out there digging for two days. <laughs> they didn't find them, but we know that they're out there. They're just stupid idiots. They can't do anything right. Okay." The only thing I know is once we went back into our normal routine, we were waiting because for 21 and a half years, we kept getting told, we know that Beverly's involved, but without any bodies, we can't prove it. Now you've got bodies, and mm-hmm. it took them two more years before really? they arrested her. Two years. Oh, wow. They arrested her in 20, 2015. Wow. It took them that long. They got them the 16th of april and they didn't arrest bever and that was in 2013 they uh-huh. didn't arrest her until the end of 2015 somewhere in 2015 and a fake traffic stop but oh. here's the rub on that we were told that they were going to arrest her very fairly quickly and then the da max cook and all these other da's were dragging their feet on purpose and kept on saying, well, we are trying to make sure we have enough evidence. Look, they were the last three people seen with my family. My three family members was Ida and Beverly. Ida's dead, but Beverly was one of the last people seen with my family. So there was malice. She openly admitted to taking a gun into the courtroom, and they called their gun baby. And she said, I took a gun into the courtroom. Back then, of course, they didn't have— All of the issues that they do now, you have to go through sensors and metal detectors and all this crap to go into a a court building. Back then, they didn't have all of that. So she admitted it. She went into hiding twice for a year on end. Both times, she refused to let Wendy have Jonathan back. And now, here we are. They found Wendy, Cynthia, and Lisa Renee on a property she used to own at that time. Mm -hmm. And two months later, sold the farm property for a dollar this is on public record you can look up the record deeds and everything she sold that property for a dollar to a family member that property belonged to her now how many coincidences does it take before you say beverly is the one who took these three picked them up at their home and they were never seen again and then later they're found on her property Mm -hmm. that she used to own There's no way in hell, even a five-year-old, even a five-year-old child will tell you. So we knew that at that point, the law enforcement corruption was deep. Now, we're going to fast forward to when they finally arrested her, and then they took her to her court for sentencing. I didn't get to go to her arraignment. I didn't know how fast it was going to be. I had little kids at the time. I couldn't drop my life and just on a whim go to a briscoe. So I did get to go to the hearing. Where they were doing sentencing faith. Okay. My mom, me, my husband, Leon, Manel, the which is Leon's other sister, and Manel's husband, which I can't remember his name. He's a pastor. All I remember is we were all sitting in the room, and we asked Max Cook, the DA, was there, and then there were three other DAs. And you know, you're meeting new people. You're already emotionally distraught. I they introduced themselves. I couldn't pick them off of a photo lineup if you were going to pay me 20 million dollars yeah. a name i could recognize the face or name i wouldn't i wouldn't get any money because i can't remember mm-hmm. i just know there were three other guys they said we're the da for this county and since it happened over the four counties we're charging them in all four counties and Whoa. we're all going to be involved in this now they told my mother me and leon and his family this is the deal Grover is on his deathbed and he cannot do the de- deposition even such poor health he can't speak well and because of that we get one chance at this now we know that we can do beverly saying that she was after the effect at- accessory she helped cover up the murder it was her mama that did it oh I sure because her mom's gone now yeah, so it's easy yeah, to uh-huh right but we said ida had no dog in the race Beverly went into hiding twice for a year at each time she brought a gun to the courtroom she threatened that she legally adopted Jonathan all of this stuff is Beverly 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 now all of a sudden we got Ida being vindictive and hate no it was 100% Beverly and Beverly deserves to go to, to prison it is Beverly who did this not Ida well At that point, they said, what we're going to do is we offered a deal for 15-year sentences for each of them, but it's going to run concurrently. She's not eligible for good time. She's not eligible for work credit because this is a murder, and she's not eligible for early release at all. She has to serve a certain percentage before she's even eligible for parole, and seeing that a six-year-old child was killed. 90% chances she won't get parole. And I said, okay, fine. We go in, the judge sentences her. Not only that, once you do your 15 years, even if you get probation or parole, you still have 15 additional years of probation to complete before you're wiped out of the system, making her 75 or 80 until she's out of this punishment phase. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. weren't happy at all. I never wanted her to ever be out again. Of course. But here we are. So we get home. And Brandy Ball, again, my hero, my angel, calls me and says, Aisha, you won't believe this shit. I was like, what? Because she had been at the hearing too. She showed up for the hearing, held my hand, interviewed me, uh, blah, blah, blah. She tells me I have been flooded with calls for the last four hours. And I was like, why? She looks, I had one lady call me and say, this morning, Grover was at Walmart buying groceries for his restaurant. They personally know him. So they were able to, you know, that, you know, was in uh-huh. the grocery store. Then another lady lived beside him and she said that he was out mowing his lawn that day. So he wasn't on, he on his, his deathbed. No. <laughs> so what I called and Brandy gave me names, phone numbers, and addresses of all these people who had called so that I could call the OSBI agent and, the, and Max Cook. And say, look, here's A, B, C, D. These people personally know Grover, and they said that he was walking around. And this, yeah. and you know what, Mister Max Cook, the crook, said to me, "No, I never told you guys that you're that he was on his deathbed." We said we only have one shot at this, and we know that without her admitting it. I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, Mister Cook, you're lying." He goes, "I'm not lying." I said, "I will get my husband and my mother and Leon and Manel." Every single person I called before I called you, what did Max Cook say? The reason he couldn't get any video deposition or have uh, Mr. Grover in the room to testify against Beverly, what was the reason he gave? Every single person said, because he's on his deathbed. If everybody heard you say, he couldn't even come to court to testify, and he was in such poor condition on his deathbed, he couldn't speak just so we would agree to a plea deal then here we roll around where he kept on saying we were lying we're delusional i never said that to you and i said so you got seven people lying and you're not lying right yeah all seven people are saying you are lying you said that to us and you're the only person sitting on the corner saying i didn't so we aren't delusional we're not making up anything and on top of that we pulled the news footage of brandy's interview and he said it on tape he said it oh, on wow. tape that he unfortunately because of his poor health he's on his deathbed and we couldn't have him but we offered the plea deal and we are pleased that we were able to see some prison time for this heinous crime are his exact words and i said so now you're going to call yourself a liar that you said it on video you're lying you know that you're lying, and you said it on TV. You admitted it on TV. So why are you lying now? And he has got very frustrated and told me never call him again and hung up on me. Then skip forward a couple of years. Okay. I get a notification from Vine, which is the Victim Informational Network something. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, if you've got any family member or if you're the victim of a crime, you can call Vine, set up a notification for a specific prisoner, and if any parole options come up or anything, right. it'll notify They'll you via phone mm-hmm. call. Yep. Right, but it's sadly three weeks behind. We get a phone call saying she's up for parole and this and So what did we do? We flooded the parole board with like 400 letters of why she should sure. not get parole. Yep. Parole was denied. Then we get another phone call two weeks later and we were confused because it says Beverly No is no longer in the state of Oklahoma Department of um, Justice. She's been released and waived of even her probation. What? And we're like, oh, two weeks ago, four and a half years in, you weren't supposed to earn good time. You had to do a certain percentage of your case. And every single thing, you, even if you got out, you had 15 years of probation. And you did less than four and a half years, and you're already out, and now probation has been waived through? Why? How? How? Wow. I want to know how. You were denied parole. So how did you get out? Yeah. I didn't and read that when, part. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's already been out now for, what, two years? Wow. Yeah. And we're wondering if you got 15 years on aggravated murder or even accessory to murder... And you had to serve at least a certain portion of that sentence. You were denied parole. And yet you got out in four and a half years after killing three people. How? Wow! I want to know how. And nobody can answer my question. Nobody
0: has an answer for you.
1: Nobody has an answer. Mm. It is called corruption at its finest. Even the Shamrock Police Department got completely closed down because of corruption. So so convoluted, it's 21 it, and a half know, years yeah. of down into, you know, two hours. And it's a lot. Yeah, I just want just... It to be very clear that all these years on Unsolved Mysteries, my sister's character was completely mm-hmm. assassinated. People thought that she was a true weirdo shouting at somebody nice enough to take her to go see her mm-hmm. son. And she was directly in at fault for her own disappearance. Mm. And it was completely untrue. Yeah, we want make sure the listeners never know that. Did that. Yep. It, yeah, it is completely false. My yep. sister was never taken in a vehicle and driven anywhere else. They were killed at that property. Mm-hmm. As soon as they got off the phone, they took them back to the house, they killed them, and then they went in an hour and a half drive and went and had a nice steak dinner that was their goal that they just didn't even care they went to go out to eat dinner yep yep
0: well we so. will we will make sure that that is very clear and i really yeah. really appreciate your time tonight and being willing to talk with us and keep your sister's memory alive and tell this very complicated convoluted story
1: i appreciate you guys' time and i really would like to say thank you to you know keeping my sister's memory alive I'm an avid podcast listener, oh, and good. I'm definitely very happy that I've got so much traction about my sister. Me, and me. too. I just want people to know if your family members, if you're going through anything similar to me, you have a child custody case, tread lightly, try to remain on good terms with everybody in the family, even if you don't want to force yourself to be, you know, very amiable with them yes, These cool yes that is wonderful headed. advice yeah. <laughs> just don't yep. don't let your emotions drive right. you yep. at that time you can resolve anything if you keep a level head
0: yep Wonderful advice. Thank you so much again for your time, and we hope that well, you're you welcome. that you do well and like blessings perfect, to you. Perfect. Thank you so much. And you thank take you. care. Now,
1: you guys have a wonderful eve. I'll send uh, you the you. link.
0: Yes, take care. <laughs> bye bye. Well, you
1: too. Thanks for right. your time. Thanks for sharing. Bye bye, you guys. Bye no
0: bye. Okay, hope you all enjoyed this episode. I did not prepare a brain bath, but I would like to read you guys read you guys well yeah all of you Jason you and the audience Uh, a brain bath that was sent to us by a patreon who I'm looking in my email for it right now Um, if you listen to I think it was the last episode Amanda had sent in a um, oh, a little good chuckle about how uh, Crime Curious accidentally sent her to the ER. Uh, she slipped in the shower. Can't do that. Listening to us. Yes. But, uh, so, here's another funny one from Amanda. And I think that you'll really appreciate this. She said, I have to share this because I know y'all, especially Megan, and just so you know, Megan is listening to this episode. Uh, she loves to listen when she's away. We'll get a good chuckle out of this. My son and I listen to y'all's podcast all the time together, and apparently he's learned a few life lessons from you, too. Yesterday, my son was having a pool party. Basically, my backyard was filled with a group of rowdy 16-year-olds. Naturally, there's music playing, yelling, and the regular loudness that follows teenage boys. At about 7 p.m., my neighbors felt like the boys were too loud, and instead of coming to talk to us, they called in a noise complaint. Anyway... The way my yard is set up, you have to enter the gate past the pool and get to the front yard. Well, this is a very nice police officer, comes to the house, stops by the pool to talk to the boys before coming to the front door. Keep in mind this is a very tamed pool party with me occasionally going outside to check on the boys. The cop walks up and asks whose house this is. My son swims over and tells him it's his house. Well, the cop is making casual conversations, conversation and asks, are you all celebrating everything, anything or just having a good time. Without hesitation, my son pipes up and tells him, sir, I'm a minor. I won't answer any questions without my mom and a lawyer.
2: That <laughs> escalated.
0: The cop is taken back and starts to kind of laugh it off, but my son keeps a dead-ass straight face. I came outside and asked what's going on, and my son my son says, I told him I wouldn't answer any questions without you and a lawyer. So now I'm concerned trying to figure out what the hell I've missed, and makes and that makes my son... Um, starting as that makes my stunt my son starting to ask for a lawyer the cop very very weirdly says i was just here to ask you to turn the music down and I kid you not, I laughed so hard I almost peed my pants. Then I tried to explain the cop that we listen to true crime, and they always say, have a lawyer when questioned by police. Apparently, my son took the lesson to heart, and the cop just kind of got a little weird laugh and said, okay, have a good night, and headed out um, to his car at a brisk pace. I found the whole thing hilarious, and I hope it made you smile, and I hope you all have a great day. Amanda, we did. That did make us smile.
2: Your, your son's going to be prepared for a life of crime. <laughs>
0: well he's he's gonna be prepared to know how to handle it you know so that's that's more than most people i
2: meet at least he didn't pull out his phone and start recording it right away oh
0: god that's a good point too yeah well he was in the pool so he couldn't but all right y'all thanks so much for hanging in and listen to this uh, listening to this episode we hope that you continue to listen and keep it curious and and uh you know i don't know what else just yeah
1: I need a nap
2: after this one.
0: For sure. This was a lot. It was a roller coaster. Yeah. So take care y'all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You get to say your little bye-bye. (laughs)
2: Bye-bye.